Hey, Chad Brown here. You may remember me as a linebacker in the NFL or as a reptile breeder and the owner of Pro Exotic. I've been herping since I was a boy, and I've dedicated my life to advancing the industry and educating the community about the importance of reptiles. I also love to encourage the joy of breeding and keeping reptiles as a hobbyist, which is why my partner Robin and Marklin and I create the Reptile Report. The Reptile Report is our online news aggregation site bringing you the most up-to-date discussions from the reptile world. Visit TheReptileReport.com every day to stay on top of the latest reptile news and information. We encourage you to visit the site and submit your exciting reptile news, photos, and links so we can feature outstanding breeders and hobbyists just like you. The Reptile Report offers powerful branding and marketing exposure for your business, and the best part is it's free. If you're a buyer or a breeder, you got to check out the Reptile Report Marketplace. The Marketplace is the reptile world's most complete buying and selling destination full of features to help put you in touch with the perfect deal. Find exactly what you're looking for with our advanced search system. Search by sex, weight, morph, or other keywords and use our buy it now option to buy that animal right now. Go to marketplace.thereptilereport.com and register your account for free. Be sure to link your Marketplace account to your Ship Your Reptiles account to earn free tokens with each shipping label you book. Use the Marketplace to sell your animals and supplies and maximize your exposure with a platinum ad. It also gets fed to the Reptile Report and our powerful Marketplace Facebook page. Buy and selling? Use shipyourreptiles.com to take advantage of our discounted priority overnight shipping rates. ShipYourReptiles.com can also supply you with the materials needed to safely ship your animals successfully. Use ShipYourReptiles.com to take advantage of our discounted priority overnight shipping rates, the materials needed to ship your reptiles successfully, live customer support, and our live on-time arrival insurance program. We got you covered. Visit TheReptileReport.com to learn or share about the animals. Click on the link to the marketplace, find that perfect pet or breeder. Then visit ShipYourReptiles.com to ship that animal anywhere in the United States. We are your one-stop shop for everything reptile-related. another episode of Morelia Python Radio and tonight we are talking uh well I should preface this by saying there was rough scales and Owen <laughs> and tonight it's 
<laughs> my rough Imbricata. scale python, yeah. <laughs> Morelia imbricata. Uh, now, so <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I've I've wanted to do this show for a long time, and uh, you know, really, the only people that work with imbricata is the people in Australia, and yeah. it's difficult to try to. Uh, to work it out and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So tonight uh, I figured who better than to talk about Morelian Bricotta than the very own Justin Julander because back in, oh, man, what was this, 2012? I guess it was the very first, maybe it was 2013, the very first uh, NARBC show I went to, um, Justin had asked me to do a talk on carpet python morphs at Tinley Park. I remember this. Yeah. <laughs> But he did a presentation at the beginning that was on the natural history of carpet pythons. And I remember being so like, I was just awesome. It was, it was really, really an awesome talk. I mean, to me, if you didn't go to that, you missed out because not only did you have Justin Julander speaking, you had, uh, Terry Phillip, you know, and uh, Terry Phillip got up and he talked a lot about, uh, the way he approaches uh, his husbandry um, and, you know, just his thoughts on it. And he did – it was it was much better to hear him do it in that uh, vein because he had a lot of time to talk and, and develop, uh, you know, his – what he was trying to say, you know. So, <clears throat> right. so I figured who better to get on uh, the show to talk about Morelia and Bricotta than – Justin Julander. And the other reason is because he's been to Australia and he's seen him in the wild. Um, oh, my so. God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So not only is, uh, you know, he, he he just has some, I'm sure, some awesome stories he's going to share with us tonight about, um, you know, him his, his witnessing them in the wild and, and, and that firsthand knowledge, I guess, that you can only get from from being there in the environment, what is the environment like? What is the, mm-hmm. you know, what's the temperature like? Uh, you know, where is it the, the animal at? All those things uh, that come into play that you can't get uh, really a feel for from the internet or a book. Uh, it's just something that you have to experience. So, um, uh, right. yeah, I'm pretty excited about it. So it should be good. And we haven't talked to Justin in a while, and what an awesome guy. So. Yeah, cool. I mean, he's been over there a few times. We've had him on a few times after he got back. And, you know, he is one of the guys that literally wrote the book. So um, who better to have on and talk about it? I mean, and just because he's seen him in the wild, that uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure you die. I'm pretty sure you just lay down <laughs> and you would just die. You know, I'm not we, worthy. We the bush. <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh, my God, I touched it. it yeah. just dissolved. I mean, it's, it's, I'd imagine this would happen to you. So, but like Hobbit, just Hobbit off. kryptonite, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. Peaked, it's over, it's done. <laughs> <laughs> what is left? But, um, yep. yeah, so tonight we're not really going to approach the show from the aspect of keeping or breeding. It's more going to be along the lines of natural history, which is, uh, I know I geek out about that stuff. So, you know, should be uh should be cool. Because one day, probably... Maybe sometime it, soon. I could no, hope. It, it will. It will happen because, and that's the thing is that, you know, and I was talking about somebody about this this week because there was that um, 
don't know if, and I know probably everybody's seen it, and I know I was tagged in it a million times. There was a red white lip that showed up on some guy's video in Jakarta. Oh, yes. Now, it's one of those things of like, is it an animal that sat in Nevada Kool-Aid for two hours? Is it, you know, hair dye? And I have read the papers. I kind of know what it could be. Um, I don't, I'm not in Jakarta, so I can't tell you what it is. But it was funny discussing with somebody where it's like, you know, uh, I'm like, if it is one of these animals, it's very rare because it's only ever been seen floating in a jar. And I never expect us to ever actually have one that would be obtained. And someone said, you know, somebody at some point said that about a rough scale. And I'm like, holy crap, they did. So it's the same thing goes <laughs> with Jakarta. It's like, oh, yeah. maybe one day. No, 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 no. It, it will happen. It's just a matter of when. So same thing with Owen Pelly. Mark my words. I may be, yeah. I may be in my six. But, you know, it'll happen. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think we might be a little closer with uh, Imbricata. Um, God, I hope so. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So um, before we do get Justin on, I, I guess I, I should always approach this like we have new listeners tuning in because, you know, every week I see numbers right. going up. And not. So <laughs> I'm assuming that there's new people coming into this. Um so if you're just into carpets and you have you're kind of confused by the whole thing, um, you should definitely go and pick up the book, the Complete Carpet Python. Um, you know, Justin and Nick both wrote that book, um, and uh, Ben also had a part in it as well. It's an awesome book. Uh, it pretty much answers every question you could have about carpet pythons and it's it's just an awesome read. I think I've read it like six times. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think I, I, I think uh, I loaned mine to somebody and I haven't gotten it back, so I'm just gonna go in and buy a new one. So well, it's I I loaned mine to Matt, right? And then yeah. you know, yeah. he was he's reading it or whatever and I was like, Man, I, I can't not have this in my house, so I guess I have to and buy another weird? one. <laughs> yeah. So well, I, I had to I had to buy another one. Yeah, so, uh, I, I gave it to my cousin because he was like, I really want a car python. I'm like, you have no idea what you're doing. Here, read this, and then we'll talk <laughs> about you getting a carpet python, okay? So yeah. I, I think I think he took it to, with him to college, and I, 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 I can't get mad at him. It's like, I want to be like, you did. You did. I can't. So. <laughs> yeah, you can't do it. So I'm just going to um, go buy another one. So, so yeah, so um, – so we're going to be hitting on some of this stuff that's uh, in the book, and uh, there's a couple papers and whatnot that I'm, that we might be res- referencing tonight. Um, at I guess I can um, post them over on MoreliaPythonRadio.com probably later on tonight. Um, you can also use Google Scholar, uh, which mm-hmm. is uh, uh, you basically can type in the topic or a paper or whatever, and uh, it'll pop up in there, which is awesome uh, for that kind of thing. Um, and also, uh, towards the end, obviously, Justin also breeds reptiles as well. Um, we're going to be hitting on some of the stuff that he has going on with Australian addiction. Um, and uh, we will also be talking about – he does his own podcast, which we'll have to uh, to get up to speed on what's going on. But uh, it's more from the uh, academic point of view. But I love it because he pretty much reads a paper and then digests it and – tells you what's going on with the paper so that's pretty
pretty awesome. Uh, it's just I, much I've... smarter than ours. All right, it's much <laughs> smarter. All yeah. right, yeah, yeah. We are like the uh, what would it be like? Hmm. Come on, Owen, you're pretty quick Change with the world wit. of the reptile world. What do you want from me? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's more like the Mozart of the reptile world as yeah. well. Oh, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> okay. Yeah. No, we're Wayne's world. So we're Wayne's world. He's Mozart. Yeah, that makes so much sense. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Well, so uh, I think I have another soundbite now. We're the Wayne's world of the reptile world. All right. So I'll hold on to that one later. Um, yeah. So before we uh, before we get him on, um, the one thing that I wanted to say is make sure that uh, this weekend is the Northwest Carpet Fest. Northwest Carpet awesome. Fest. It rhymes. Um, so if you're out in the Seattle area um, or if you thought about going, I mean, we've said this numerous times. There's been uh, two so far. There are two? Yeah. Three so far this year. Three. Three, three, um, three, three so far, yeah. Uh, and if you've missed out on all of them and you've wondered why didn't I go to – uh, you know, I wanted to go, I was on the fence and I didn't go. This will definitely be one that you probably, eh, you're going to rub shoulders with some of the, uh, dare I say coolest people in the, uh, Morelia world. Um, yeah. uh, obviously, uh, Mr. Nick Mutton will be out there. Uh, Casey Lasik. Uh, man, I'd uh, love to have a beer with that, that guy. That, that would be cool. <laughs> That would um, be fun, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um Doug Taylor's hosting it and he has um Boland's Pythons, which are always cool to see. So you'll be able to check them out if you were ever wondering what they were like or never seen them in uh you know, it's not something you see all the time at a reptile show. Um mm-hmm. so if you ever wanted to uh to see what's going on. He has he has uh, also works with uh Moose Rana, um which they're pretty cool snakes. Um, they are. And I, he works with other Morelia as well. So um, it's definitely going to be a good time. Uh, so if you're able to get there, unfortunately, I can't go because uh, Tinley Park is next weekend. So once again, I'm going to miss out. Um, Holy crap, unless, it's next weekend? Oh. Tinley Park is next weekend, yes. Um, wow, I I got to start doing stuff. <laughs> anyway, go ahead. Continue, sorry. <laughs> yeah. The uh, the auction uh, they're going to be doing an auction. Um, the the page is not ready yet, um, but be looking for it. They're going to you'll see it. I'm blasted all over the place. It'll be on Morelia Pick of the Week, Morelia Python Radio's Facebook page, Carpet Facebook page, our Carpet Fest pa- Facebook page. Um, you'll see it. I don't know. You'll probably see it all over the place. But uh, they they got some cool stuff. All donations are going to uh, US Arc. So. Uh, should awesome. be should be awesome. I know myself. I have a two hundred dollar voucher in the in their uh, their running. I think. And so oh, do I. Oh, okay. Yep, uh, so yep, I, yep. we have it. Um, I know there's a few other people. I'm sure uh, you know Nick and all those guys have something as well. So uh, as we know more details about that, you'll you'll be seeing it. But if you have the chance, you should definitely try to to make it out and go hang out with those guys. It'll be a good time. And the one thing that I'm looking forward to seeing is what is Nick going to eat this year? Um, <laughs> well, last year, last year, I think they, I think they just slapped him across the face. If I remember the videos from last year correctly, 
So it was like first year he ate a rat. Second year it was like you auctioned for the right to slap Nick across the face or something like that. So they were slapping um, contest or something, and uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we would do that at the Northeast. We would do that at Northeast Carver Fest, but someone would probably kill me. So it's like you know, you want the right to punch Owen in the face, and that's when I get stabbed. So we're not gonna do that. Yeah. So. Um, Sorry, guys. Yeah, I think um, I don't really have anything else uh, to hit on. Uh, I don't know if you do, Owen. Um, um pretty good. We can okay. head on through to this thing. Yeah, so let's uh I think Justin's here. So let's click him on and get this going. Hey Justin. Uh is that that's hey, you right? Hey guys. That's how, how you, you doing, doing here, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah wow. we can hear you. Cool, so cool. you've uh this is not your first rodeo with us, unfortunately <laughs> for you. We're sorry. So no, no. Uh, happy to be on, guys. Appreciate the, the opportunity to blab a little bit. <laughs> and, and we and we love it, and especially when it's uh, something that not a lot of people hear a lot about. So it's uh, <laughs> good that we have you for these things. So well, I'm I'm hoping I can add something worth. I mean, uh, beyond what we've written in the books, I, I you know I don't have a lot of firsthand experience, and some of those uh, some of my buddies in uh, Western Australia would probably be uh, much better and to uh, talk to in regards to the actual keeping and and breeding and things like that, but I'll give it a, give it a shot here. <laughs> we'll, we'll track some of them down later, but we'll grab yeah, you right you now. So, there you go. Um, <laughs> it's a little easier to work it out in the, in the United States rather than trying to get somebody from WA to call in. Right. <laughs> we, we've done that, but it results in like us having to do like a five o'clock show or something like that. So, <laughs> yep. <laughs> keep it on the normal well, you know, table. With the Southwest Carver Fest, I, you know, I'm I'm not going to be able to be there this year. I'm kind of sad about that. But you know, the the only the next logical conclusion for Nick is to have people yeah. kick him in the junk for money. That's, <laughs> that's, 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 that's it. where it's got to go. That's next. right. That's right there. I mean, it has to be. <laughs> it's it's just it, logical. It's the next and next it's his logical. Own fault. It, it's escalation. Oh, so I mean, yeah. He's done. <laughs> <laughs> he has uh, yeah. good. Yeah. Fine. Uh, you know, and, and the chance to you know rub date Doug Taylor's shiny head, you know that's kind of that's got to be worth something too. <laughs> I would think. So. Of course, fuck. <laughs> I mean, come on. Yeah, it so, should be a lot of fun. I'm sad I'm missing it this year, but I've, I've been gone like every weekend for the last couple months, so I better stick around, or I may not have a family <laughs> come back too. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I think that's why Eric's not going, and I'm broke, so that's yeah. why I'm not going. Yeah. But. Um, now, Justin, let's um, let's talk about your thoughts on when it comes to taxonomy of the Southwestern uh, python. Yeah, I know we're we're <laughs> we're not pulling punches; we're going right for it. Um, oh yeah, right for the throw. <laughs> exactly. Now there has been some research. Correct me if I'm wrong. That shows that Morelia imbricata is genetically distinct, almost as distinct as Morelia bredlai. Uh, can yeah. we talk about this? Sure, sure. I can give a little bit of thought on that. But first off, you know, taxonomy in general is is a dynamic process. It's really hard mm-hmm. to kind of nail down something. Is it's always changing and and things like that. So you know, I, and and as highlighted recently with the uh, Barker's uh, recent publication on the state of you know Python taxonomy. I think I I did one of my podcasts on that 
been a little while, been a little lazy, but um, I, uh, they talk about the difficulties and, and the problems that have arisen through the very, you know, various publications on taxonomy. Um, you know, a lot of the earlier work was based on morphology, and so you know, a lot of those things kind of made made sense to people. But later inclusion of DNA uh, has kind of muddled it further, I guess. So mm-hmm. it's really hard to to really find that evolutionary history of pythons through the current classification system and, and the definition of what makes a species and what doesn't. That's, you know, very ill-defined, especially with reptiles. Um, I think they've originally tried to take a lot of mammalian uh, taxonomy and tried to apply it to reptiles, and, and a lot of things just don't fit. Um, the fact that you can breed a ball python with a black-headed python is kind of evidence for that, I think. You know, they they just don't fit the, the typical species profile. Um, mm-hmm. the, the other the other thing is there's just, you know, each analysis that has been done since, you know, about uh, the late 90s has kind of given a different, um, you know, organization of things. They're, they don't even agree, you know, which species kind of come, um, you know, at which time point. They haven't nailed that down as to, you know, the appearance of different species on the scene. And so it's really hard to make any conclusive statements based on the analysis that's been done. Now, a rigorous analysis of carpet pythons specifically has only mm-hmm. been done in one work, and that work is by uh, Taylor, Duncan Taylor, um, and that's you know that's been a while since he did that analysis, and that was basically his research for his uh, master's degree, and so um, to 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 take too much away from that is difficult because one he you know he didn't finish and, and publish it in a peer-reviewed scientific journal. Okay, so in publishing, okay. um, that's kind of the that's kind of the uh, the step to kind of eliminate uh, faulty science. You know, you, you submit it to three or four or five, um, depending on, you know, the journal and, and what kind of work is being done. Um, you submit it to these experts in the field that are doing similar work. And they just try to, you know, find flaws, find uh, things that were could have been improved on, could have been done differently, find things that don't make sense and try to, you know, get get further input on those, uh, tell them to do different analyses and things like that. So obviously, you know, getting a pub- paper published in a journal is, is a fairly uh, difficult thing and you've got to go through, jump through different hoops once people mm-hmm. review your paper. And with a, a thesis, um, you submit it to your committee on campus who may or may not be experts in that area. So I imagine, you know, he... It, of course, his major professor was obviously an expert in the field, and so the work is pr- likely very sound. But just mm-hmm. the fact that it hasn't been reviewed outside of his university and published in a peer-reviewed journal makes it, you know, difficult to say how much to buy into this or not, right? Okay. But since it's so, the only thing we have, you know, that's what we go off of. Okay, so would you call it as an officially it being a distinct species, or are you still kind of like the hey, it's a good theory, but it needs to be reviewed. Well, so in, in my mind, if, you know, or well, I guess in, in, in general, evolutionary theory says if it has its own 
evolutionary trajectory if it's mm-hmm. got uh you know a barrier between it and other species that are similar and uh and, and in in a lot of ways uh imbricata um makes that uh or it has that available so i think because it's separated um by that nullar arbor plain um in western australia um, that population, at least in, in Western Australia, is distinct and far enough away from any other carpet python that it's on its own evolutionary trajectory. So unless the Null Arbor Peninsula or anywhere in between, uh, you know, the ranges of Bretelli or Spilota comes in contact with Imbricata, then it's on its own uh, evolutionary trajectory. And I think, therefore, it probably warrants species status. Also, you know, there were some genetic differences that were identified by Taylor, and so I think that adds, you know, weight to the argument that they are their own species. Um, okay. And, you know, they're just, you know, there's some morphological differences, including the nasal scale, how, you know, it's got lacking the suture, and, uh, you know, it's different from Imbricata, or sorry, uh, Metcalfi, which also lacked the suture, but the imbricata nostril is in the center of the nasal scale, whereas the the nostril is on the side of the nasal scale in Metcalfi, which is kind of outlined in the book and and the picture to kind of illustrate that. Although it's you know somewhat difficult to see that, but um, those are some of the things that have been used to kind of differentiate the two, um, you know, and show that there's some morphological uh, distinction between the two as well as, you know, whatever, uh, what uh, Duncan Taylor showed to be differences in genetics between that population and others. Now, when you throw in the whole Air Peninsula and, you know, Gammon Ranges population, that kind of messes things up a little bit. So, um, Okay. Know, so that kind of throws everything off the side. Yeah, okay. <laughs> a little bit. So, you know, it's, it's debatable still, I think. I don't think it's been conclusive, conclusively answered and. uh so that's kind of where we stand now. Great. Right when I think we're done with Morelia debates, here comes another one. So, <laughs> all right. Um, now, personally, do you find yourself as a lumper or a splitter uh, in the process? <laughs> and uh, that, what, what, what must one go through from taking an animal from a subspecies to a full separate species status? Mm-hmm. Like, would yeah, I I think myself I I would I, I would probably side more on the splitter category. I kind of like um, when they identify distinctness in animals. You know, I kind of get excited when these papers come out showing that, say, you know, the Varanus pilbarensis has been split into Varanus pilbarensis and Varanus hammersleyensis. That's kind of neat, you know, to to see. And then when you go and see them in person, you say, okay, yeah, they look different. They they're you know somewhat different in their behaviors or this or that you know you can kind of see that and I think um, herpeticulturalists or, or herpers have seen that difference for a long time and a lot of times you know that's kind of our opportunity to play uh, part in the whole scientific process as far as taxonomy if we're out there you know from our passion and, and our interest we're out there in the field looking at these things in the wild and we see differences. It, you know, it might be time to bring in a, a, a true herpetologist who can help us describe that and publish that information. And there could be some validity to it. There could be some importance to it, uh, such as with, you know, the example I just gave. And, you know, same kind of thing with the carpet pythons. I think, you know, we see these distinctions between uh, 
you know, a, a diamond and a coastal and a jungle and things like that. And maybe there's something there. Maybe there is, you know, that that genetic flow across the populations is is kind of tricky to define where one ends and one starts and one begins. And actually writing the book, you know, before I started doing research for the book, um, I kind of thought, you know, there is a distinction. It's easy to tell a difference between a coastal and a jungle. You know, it's easy to see the difference between a jungle and a Darwin. And, and you mm-hmm. know, but once you start looking at these things in nature, you know, all all those ideas kind of went out the window a little bit. And I kind of started thinking, wait a second, you know, maybe maybe it isn't as simple as that. Maybe it isn't as simple as what we have in our minds of, from, you know, looking at captive animals or what we've kind of defined as what they are. And now I've kind of changed that a little bit. And I think in some instances I probably would be a lumper. I think in the case of, you know, a, a jungle carpet and a coastal, I think if you stick a, a nice uh, – coastal, you know, tan color, you know, typical coastal, stick it in the jungle for, you know, within a pen for a few generations, you might see them change uh, to adapt to that environment and start to be darker, you know, more contrasting black and yellow. And and you might have the same appearance as a jungle just from that selective pressure to survive in a jungle habitat when before they were adapted to kind of survive on the, on the, plains or more grassland type things, eucalyptus forests, that kind of mm-hmm. uh, so you know, it, it depends on the story, but I think I've I've I can see myself being both a lumper and a splitter in, in depending on the case. But overall <laughs> I, I kinda get excited more by the splitting because it means something new to learn, something you know, somebody's doing cool work with these animals. And actually there's a ton of research. One of my favorite uh websites is um, the uh, A-Rod, A-R-O-D, the Australian Reptile something database or <laughs> something like arod.com.au. Um, it's, uh, um, oh, it's a collection of all the Australian species. And on that site, they put up, uh, Stuart McDonald, I believe, does the site, and he puts up all the latest um, papers, including taxonomic changes, and so, you know, you see what kind of new species there are out there and what you get to learn about and, and uh, differentiate. So, um, yeah, that's yeah awesome. it's, it's interesting. It's fun, fun to learn about that stuff. Anyway. It's, a, it's a reptile nerd website. That's definitely that's what it that is. is. Yeah. So yeah. At least we know. <laughs> yeah. All right. Justin, uh, uh, apparently uh, I remember you reading on Morelia Pythons um, that – your thoughts on carpets perhaps being what's called a ring species. Can you elaborate on that and kind of tell us what a ring species is? Okay. So the the concept kind of goes back. Uh, They did some work on a salamander population, and and the salamander population actually went all the way around uh, a mountain, basically. And so they they kind of tracked, you know, genetically and found that, you know, uh, they probably originated here, and made their way around the mountain. And by the time they made their way all the way around back to the original, they had become so distinct that they were classified as different species. And so the beginning and the end couldn't interbreed, but all the way, you know, the the end could breed with the population next to it, you know, going back towards the first. Uh, oh, that, that, you know, that's cool. <laughs> these, these changes as they go around and adapt to the different, you know, niches that are in different parts around the mountain, you know, mm-hmm. we're enough selective pressure to make them differentiate enough be, 
between uh, until the end where they didn't really recognize each other as a compatible um, breeding partner, basically. And so, I, you know, you you might envision that with Australia, although you know, there's there's some uh, maybe flaws in that thinking. But you know, you might envision the Australian pythons, you know, as they, you know, they they kind of originated in Europe. Kind of these, this, uh, uh, you know, descendants kind of came down through Europe and down through Asia into Australia. So Australia is kind of the terminus of their migration, right? Mm-hmm. And so as they enter Australia from the north and kind of make their way down the eastern side and down along the bottom and kind of up into Western Australia, you can kind of see how they're migrating down and through and across and, and back up again. And, you know, I don't know if that's the case or if they just kind of generally percolated down through all of Australia. And then as Australia dried out, they kind of got stuck where they are, you know. Um, it, it's hard to hard to imagine how uh, Bredeli got to the, you know, that center around Alice Springs um, unless there was some sort of path. And, you know, who knows where that path would have been. I'm sure mm-hmm. maybe there's some, some fossil evidence or potentially to show how they might have migrated or what path they might have taken. But, you know, you might be able to say that, uh, you know, the the Darwin carpets are kind of more of the basal and they were the original and then it kind of went around and, and Imbricata as it comes up through South or West, Western Australia is more of the uh, derived species. But of course that's just kind of a fun little idea to think about and <laughs> it hasn't been proven one way or another and it, probably will never be uh, investigated in that regard. But, you know, it's kind of a an interesting way to think about it as potentially have happened. Um, that's always hard to nail down, you know, how things got where they are. You know, we have some scant fossil evidence of, you know, where they might have originated from and, you know, what mm-hmm. came first. You know, the populations up in, in Europe were kind of the original stuff and they migrated. And, you know, I think we've got evidence to show that, but... You know what? How that proceeded once they hit Australia is very difficult to say. They have found fossils in Australia uh, in the let's see, River Sloansis is the species name that they gave that um, carpet python fossil. But those are indistinguishable from current carpet python. You know, so they haven't mm-hmm. really changed in millions of years. They've been around, uh, you know, and so they they're the same today as they were back then in a lot of ways, at least in their in their uh, structure, bone structures and things that they can uh, deduce from fossils, you know. So, yeah, interesting Very, things to think yeah. about. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, that, that's really cool that you think about that, that that's something that people have thought about, and it makes a lot of sense when it comes to Morelia, so that's awesome. Um, <laughs> now, uh, what are your thoughts of the carp pythons that are found, I guess, in the, I guess it's pronounced eerie? Peninsula. Um, they were attributed to uh, Macafi, uh, but due to DNA evidence, they're being shown that they're more closely related to Imbricata. Yeah. So but I again, guess I, that's like a pocket thing. It's way over where Imbricata are not. So Yeah. And, and if this is the case, if they are Imbricata, then it's a disjunct population. You've got, you know, kind of that separation. So as you move from South Australia across the bottom and you're moving west, you hit this big desert called the Knoll Arbor Plain where there's not a lot of uh, life, especially python life. <laughs> Pythons don't okay. occur in that area. And it's very <laughs> arid and, 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 you know, uninhabitable to, to some degree. And so... um 
you know, and, and as you kind of get closer to or within Western Australia, once you get past the Null Arbor Plain, you start getting suitable habitat to support carpet pythons. Now, this probably in the past, and it's been shown, I believe, uh, through the fossil record that this was a supportive habitat in the past, and then it's just aridified and dried out, and now it's uh, no longer supports them. So, you know, there probably was a population of carpet pythons that extended from South Australia across to Western Australia, and uh, and then they just kind of got separated by this uh, Null, Null Arbor Plain. Um, now, the ranges of Moralia uh, Spilota metcalfi, and incidentally, I think metcalfi are probably pretty close to speciated as well. They might well be classified. I, mean, I think uh, Nick was talking about this, and he he gets really geeked out by taxonomy for sure. So, um, and he you know he's probably read more than I have on it, and and he thinks that you know this, well the the analysis done by Taylor in his uh, thesis. Um, showed that they were about 4.9 and he had the cutoff of 5.0 to be a, a separate species. Oh, so, you know, his, yeah, so, you know, it's, it's somewhere like that, you know, some kind of uh, silliness like that. So, you know, they're pretty uh, distinct from the coastal um, kind of those, the, the, the carpets that range up along the eastern coast. Um, and they are separated physically in, in most of the range by the you know that uh, mountain range that's right along the east coast there, and so the Great Dividing Range um, separates those populations, and so I think they're kind of on their own evolutionary trajectory, and probably would also warrant uh, full species status to to some degree, and so. Um, but what's interesting is the ranges of the um, metcalfi. You can find them down just about 50 miles south, you know of the, the northernmost point where you find uh, Imbricata or the, you know, that Gammon Ranges. So the Gammon Ranges, if if you, um, you know, depending on how familiar you are with um, Australia, uh, there's Adelaide, which is in mm -hmm. South Australia. And if you had, you know, Adelaide is within um, or near Metcalfi habitat. And as you move north, um, about Port Piri, uh, or Lara, those areas over there is kind of the northern extent, in, you know, to that little offshoot of the range, and they kind of go down along this peninsula that's shaped like Italy in reverse. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so you know, these this area is uh, attributed to Metcalfi habitat and area. Now, if you go 50 miles um, north of you know Port Perry, where you are supposed to find Metcalfi, you come to the area around Port Augusta, um, which is, uh, uh, you know, in, in South Australia as well. So 50 miles north and you're in what's uh, the kind of that Gammon Ranges, uh, Imbricata area. And so, you know, and there's also these, uh, you know, the Wiriba Forest Reserve and some other kind of mountainous forest reserves that move up all the way through to the gammon ranges. And so, you know, it's really hard to uh, put a fine, you know, a, a definite line on where one population ends and one, where another begins. And I just don't think there's, you know, been a ton of research in that area as to, you know, to really define um, the carpet python populations down there. 
So it's really hard to say what's what and, you know, what's attributed to what. So I could easily see genetic flow occurring between Metcalfi and these gammon ranges, carpet pythons um, up in, in, the, in that area of South Australia. Now, the, the you know, the, the Imbricata population is supposed to wrap around and, you know, go down through South Australia, um, kind of along um, part of South Australia and over, you know, and, until it hits the Null Arbor Plain and stops. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's just, this this just hasn't, there just hasn't been enough information gathered, I think, at this point to make a conclusive statement. Now, if you look at a gammon range's carpet python, it looks more similar to an, a metcalfi, in my opinion, than an imbricata. Um, but it shares that kind of nasal and uh, nasal suture and, nas- and and nostril positioning. It shares that with imbricata. So it's got the morphology of an imbricata, um, but it the patterning and, and you know, head... Uh, Patterning and, and body patterning looks more similar, in my opinion, to a metcalfi. So it's kind of a, a difficult one. You know, if it looks like a metcalfi, but it uh, uh, pans out like a, a imbricata by genetic analysis, um, you know, I guess, what do you go with? Do you go with the morphology? Do you go with the DNA? Um, I think there's probably enough to warrant and say that these are imbricata, and it's just a disjunct population. So that would be my uh, personal opinion on that. But mm-hmm. if there's genetic flow or genetic, you know, integration in that area, um, that's that's up for debate at this point. Um, who knows? For right. sure. <laughs> You'd have to go down there and do a lot of looking. And, and I think, uh, so Simon Stone was kind of the one that uh, discovered that population. He, I believe he lived down there in South Australia, so he would, go up into these areas and look for carpet pythons. And he was the one that brought these gammon ranges carpet pythons into captivity. And I don't know that the samples that were used in in Taylor's thesis, if those were from captive specimens that Simon Stone had obtained, or if if Taylor went out and, you know, found some animals. I doubt that because, you know, these taxonomists generally are working with test tube samples of, you know, scale clippings or whatnot. They don't go out and collect the specimens themselves. So they depend on the the locality that the uh, person that collected them provides. And so I think he probably threw those in just to uh, try to see where they lie. Now, the, the ultimate objective of Taylor's work was to prosecute people in, in regards to python smuggling and to demonstrate that a python came from a certain area by genetic traits. That was kind of the... The goal of this was to try to <laughs> identify people smuggling their pythons and, and kind of bring them to justice. And so, you know, oh, that's wow. kind of a, yeah, that was the reason he was doing that research. And so, you know, to be able to say, oh, this is an imbricata from this area. And, you know, they, I don't think they got it to that point where they could definitely declare, but they, you know, I think he ended up kind of summarizing saying we got it to this point where you can say it is a carpet python from Australia, you know, so or or it was a carpet python from this general area. But that was kind of the goal that they had in doing that research. Um so uh yeah, what where where those lines are drawn, you know, I always kinda of laugh at range maps because a lot of times they they're based on, you know, collection 
um, along roads, you know, because obviously there's a lot of places in Australia that don't have roads going to them. Um, and also, uh, you know, they, they kind of base it on suitable habitat within an area where an individual has been found. I, I really prefer the range maps that show individual data points where an animal was collected and then mm -hmm. kind of make a, a cloud based on that, you know. So it's it's hard to do range maps. I, I understand has the complications it, with that. Has anybody done that, Justin? Uh, like your know, individual, uh, you know, spots with uh, yeah. I, there's there's quite a you know there's quite a few um, range maps you know in with reptiles in general. I'm trying to think if, uh, if uh, that's been done with Australian species. I think uh, on the AROD website, yeah, AROD website. Um, arod.com.au uh, for each species profile they provide a, a range map and they include data points where animals have been collected and wow. so you know in my mind and then they kind of give an overall range and so in my mind those are the those are the uh, you know data points you want uh, that's the that's the kind of range map you want to see is one with um, collection points and and we when we made our range maps we tried to base it off of of range maps that that had that and so when you look at the carpet python range map, um, mm -hmm. there there does appear to, you know, to be kind of a gap between what you would consider metcalfi and what you consider to be imbricata. Um, but, you know, whether anybody's found something in between there and just hasn't, it hasn't been reported or, you know, somebody doesn't know about it, that's, you know, again, um, it's likely, but who knows. And, and the chance for genetic... Um, spread between those areas is highly likely. And so I think, you know, that makes it more difficult to classify those either as Imbricata or Metcalfi. Um, that, that kind of throws a wrench into that. Whereas if you go past the Null Arbor Plain, you can definitely say that those animals are Imbricata and they're genetically and, and physically separate from the rest of the carpet pythons along the eastern, you know, east east coast area. Um, you know, go in and look at that arod.com.au website and look at the carpet pythons, and you'll see what I mean. You know, the the, the dots all over Australia, almost you can kind of connect them into one flowing, you know, genetic uh, exchange route, if you will. So. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. I'm going to have to check out that site for sure, no doubt. Yeah, um, and, you know, visiting Australia and seeing some of the population or, the you know, the captives and and hearing where they're kept. One of the surprising ones was uh, from an area called Lawn Creek. Uh, I think it's a national park, and it's kind of down at you know on the on the west side of Queensland, um, kind of in a in an area where you w where we didn't anticipate carpet pythons occurring, and they look almost identical to a Darwin carpet python. And so that's kind of a, a, a long ways away from Darwin. And then also, if you look over in the Iron Range, you can find carpet pythons that look exactly like a carpet python you'd find in Darwin. And so that kind of threw me a little bit, you know, because I had this idea, okay, eastern coast, coastals, you know, just except for mm -hmm. a little area in the jungle, and that's jungles, you know. But when you find a, a an animal that looks identical to a Darwin carpet on the eastern, you know, seaboard uh, along uh, uh, Queensland, it kind of throws that uh, wrench into that thinking. So I think the same kind of uh, logic can apply to the Metcalfi Imbricata um, uh, debate as well. Right. I remember, uh, I think it was on one of your trips, you posted up a picture of a carpet python that you had found 
um, and you were asking everybody what they thought it was, and it, it clearly looked like, I can't even remember which one it was or what it wasn't, but it didn't look like what, you know, uh, what was that? Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. That was that was a coastal carpet found down uh, around the, the Brisbane area um, on Mount right. Glorious, and it looked an awful lot like a jungle. I mean, it had that really yeah. bold, distinct <laughs> pattern, black yeah. and yellow. I mean, if you were in Cairns and you found that, you'd go, oh, yeah, this is a jungle for sure, you know. So I think they share that you know, kind of a basal genotype and those those uh, phenotypes, the the pattern and color and those kind of things can pop up. If, and if they're needed, if they have a selective advantage, then that population kind of uh, pushes it towards that, you know, is pushed towards that by their environment. Um, that's the nice thing, I think, about uh, selective pressures. You know, if, if something works, then you're going to have that appearance uh, regardless of, you know, what everybody thinks you should look like. (laughs) (laughs) If you take that, if you take that thought a little further and you apply it to Mm -hmm. captivity, is that why it would be easier to say selectively breed, like, you know, to where we could get our jungles looking like they are and, you know, because they, they sort of have that built into them so that if they're in this environment, they sort of can, you know, adapt, Yeah. I guess. Well, in the wild, I mean, what are your selective pressures? You know, you've got, um, if you stand out in an environment, you're probably going to be eaten by a bird or, a you know, some <laughs> other predator in that area. Right. If you blend in better, then you're going to survive. You know, what are our selective pressures in captivity? It's it's our eyes. We say, ooh, I like that one. I'm going to keep it and breed it to another one that I really like. And so as we do that, we, we selectively bring out those traits in the animals just be based on what we like and what, what appeals to our eye. And so we become the selective pressure. And, you know, a lot of times, I guess technically you could argue once you take it out of the wild and you start choosing who it breeds with and you start selecting which ones uh, stay and breed and which ones get sent out to some kid who doesn't know what he's doing and, you know, promptly kills it, then you are the one who is making those selective pressures and it almost ceases to become that species or subspecies or whatever you want to call it. You know, it kind of ceases to become that type. If you really want to keep a locality type, you would probably just randomly select who it gets to breed with or introduce a monitor lizard into your cage and (laughs) whoever survives (laughs) and breeds. That's, you know, of course, that's uh, a little uh, difficult to do. So we we selectively breed based on our preference and what we like to see. And so, you know, that we become the selective pressure and we change its evolutionary trajectory, right? Because we're making it into something different than maybe it would have become if it had stayed in its natural environment and things like that. Of course, we're not taking them out of the natural environment. We're getting them already kind of manipulated and bred uh, from Europeans or wherever, you know, but, you know, you get the <laughs> <Right>. point. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Okay. Um. So, okay, so now that we got the taxonomy out of the way, let's talk about some natural history <laughs> as far as uh, uh, imbricata goes. Um, All right. We sort of talked about the range, I guess, of, of those guys already, um, and I'm not sure mm-hmm. – Justin, where this falls for you, but for me, they're kind of like, you know, the pinnacle type of species for me. Can you tell us what was it like 
you know, seeing seeing them in the wild. And does that change your view of, you know, keeping snakes in a box, so to speak, once you once you witness that? <laughs> well, I'll tell you what it it really gets me excited almost about keeping them in a box to some extent because to see in some ways I mean you see them in the natural habitat you get excited for what you have back home you know sitting there yeah, uh, you want to you want to try to you know learn what you can from those animals you want to try to say what what temperature are they out at what are they doing you know where are they going what are they, what do they want to do what kind of environment are they in you know, and you want to try to incorporate some of those things into your into your care and and keeping, and and that's I think the real benefit of getting out into the into the natural environment is you can learn so much, even with a brief interaction with a wild animal, and and kind of see how they behave. You know, oh, I'm getting struck at by this jungle. It's not a big surprise that maybe one of my you know baby carpets is a little feisty because that's kind of ingrained in their system, you know, like, um, right. and you see these things and, and what they survive in and you think, man, how do they do this? And you get thinking like, oh, they must need to remain undercover. Or they must be associated with this kind of habitat or, you know, and, and what happens if I follow it around, you know, what's it going to do? Where is it going to go? And, um, sometimes that's not always feasible, but, uh, my, my first interaction with the Southwestern carpet was, um, we were we were in Australia, my wife and I, and we were trying to make it down. So we were flying out the the next day, and we were driving down in the day, and we were planned to be in Perth around you know 5 p.m. And so we hit hit an area, and we were driving along, and I saw a dead snake on the road. And you know, herpers always stop to try to see what it was uh, before it got smushed and was a pancake. And so you get out and you try to identify it, and and this one was pretty easy. It was a very nice looking imbricata. And I'm like, oh, man, oh. this is a heartbreak. You know, that's the worst thing about herping in Australia is you see all these magnificent animals smushed, you know, plastered on the road. And you're like, come on. Oh, and so, wow. you know, I'm thinking, oh, bummer. You know, at least I got to see something and kind of see what habitat they're in and that kind of thing. And it was this kind of coastal, low shrub habitat where I wouldn't have expected to see a carpet python. And, you know, there was kind of a surprise. And I thought, cool you know this is a neat uh, different observation that i w- probably wouldn't have made if i wasn't over here you know i wouldn't have known mm-hmm. about this because people don't really talk about it as much or, or show that much you know and especially in scientific publication uh, they just kind of get to the data and get to the meat they don't say i was driving along in the coastal habitat and found a carpet python you know those kind of descriptions are left <laughs> out a lot of times and so right. you don't get that uh, experience and so we we drove a little further and not and, you know, kid you not, about two two miles down the road, there was another one followed oh, crap. You know, maybe 100 meters by another one. And I'm thinking, holy cow, you know, this is the place to be. This is the place where Imbricata is. <laughs> you know, this is good habitat for Imbricata. And I said, honey, what do you say if we stay till dark? <laughs> and she's like, well, you know. And I had a friend in Perth waiting for us, and he was going to put us up for the night and, you know, probably feed us dinner and stuff. And so she's like, well, they're expecting us, and we probably ought to get back. And I said, well, <laughs> I really would like to stay and look for these things. And she said, oh, of course, honey, anything for you, because she's a very loving and caring wife. And so we, she's like, okay, I'll give you an hour. I said, just, that's all I need, one hour after dark, and then we'll head down and get there. And so... Um, you know, the sun starts going down and I'm just 
pumped. I'm excited. You know, we started driving, and we kind of marked where we found these DOR specimens of Imbricata, and we started driving, right? And, and you know, about 20 minutes after the sun went down, I see this unmistakable shape. I mean, it's like the, you know, what you're looking for and what you want to see when you're out road cruising, and it's a big python you know, getting ready to cross the road. And oh. luckily, you know, it was off the, the on the shoulder. The shoulder was nice and broad and easily to see. It was a perfect area for road cruising. And so, you know, I pulled over and, and picked up this animal. Oh, man, I it's just indescribable. It was just a beautiful specimen. Um, you know, I've got pictures on my website of this animal. Just gorgeous animal. You know, probably the the nicest one you could see, <laughs> you know, over there. <laughs> and so I was, I was just totally geeked out, you know, taking wanker shots, holding it and, you know, just admiring it. You know, of course you're not supposed to handle them. So I'd never said that, but, uh, nothing happened. <laughs> yeah. You guys have to edit that out, right? But, yeah. Uh, anyway, we'll figure that out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so you know we we uh just sat there and, and i just sat there and stared at it you know my wife was excited for me she didn't necessarily want to hold it or be too <laughs> close to it <laughs> she was happy for me and she took pictures of me and all that good stuff but so then i put it down on this you know on the natural habitat and tried to get pictures of it in its environment and it sat still and never tried to hiss or strike or i mean it was just the most gentle calm python you would have met you know you'd think it was a long-term captive and uh so i got to sit and watch it you know kind of um make its way back into its habitat and i tried to get some you know filming but by that time my wife was getting worried because she couldn't see my light i was off the road down a hill a little bit (laughs) she's freaking out thinking where'd he go and so she starts calling to me like where are you and i'm trying to film the snake as it goes through and i've got my wife in the background like where did you go (laughs) So I, you know, I I cut filming a little short and I said, I'm down here. I'm okay. It's all good. So, and then we, you know, we, uh, I had to bid the snake farewell and, and move on and get back down to Perth. So otherwise I probably would have sat and followed that thing as far as I could. Now the, the habitat's pretty dense. These, uh, low lying shrubs, they're pretty thick. And so it's kind of hard getting around through those. And so I could see, that they could easily hide and blend right in in that environment. And, you know, kind of DORs are a bummer. It's sad to find those animals on the road, but it can give you an idea that there's a healthy population there. And I think I've said that Mm -hmm. before your show, you know. Those kind of things are a bummer, but they're a good sign that there's a healthy population there. And for every DOR, there's probably, you know, 20 or 30 right there in that same area on the, you know, within the habitat. Um, the the classic example in that same area is the uh, shingle pack skink. I mean, these yeah, guys only have I like you told one, or, about that. Yeah, one or two babies a year, and you find like 30 mm-hmm. dead on the road, like in one little stretch. Oh. And you're like, holy crap, you know, these things have that many, you know. And, yeah, we found, like, a dozen of them in the same area on the last trip we went on. Just walking around the area, you know, the habitat, you'd find a dozen of them, including, you know, breeding pairs, following each other around. It was fantastic. That's so, awesome. Yeah. Wow. Good stuff. That's crazy. So, okay, so that's kind of, like, temperature-wise, can you tell us, like, what was, what was what what did it feel like? Uh, was it dry, yeah, hot? It, what was the temperature going on there so so it was some i mean it was 
it, it was springtime, so it was somewhat cool. And I imagine they were out kind of on the on the lookout for for mates or or starting to warm up, you know, after the winter. And and things were somewhat cool down in that area, especially at night. Now during the day they got fairly warm and and it was uh, you know hot enough that you you would seek cover, you know, during the the hottest part of the day. And so my wife and I would generally kind of hang out, you know, somewhere. Uh, when we were waiting for it to get dark, it was hot enough that we just kind of hung out in a park, you know, under a under a pavilion. I think we found a place to shower, which was nice too, because mm-hmm. being on the road and camping out in Australia, you get a little uh, <laughs> right, I guess we'll say. So, um, but you know, it was uh, at nights it was fairly cool. And when we found the individual, it was probably in you know the upper 70s, maybe low 80s. And it was probably coming out on the road to get a little of that warmth from the road. So I imagine, you know, in the in the evenings and in the mornings, they're probably doing some basking. You know, probably with, with carpet pythons, they typically bask uh, kind of in a semi-covered area, you know, with some shrubs over top, kind of dappled light kind of basking. They're not uh, – you might find them out in the springtime on a rock, you know, taking in full sun and at least with diamond pythons that's been demonstrated they'll they'll bask out in the open out on the rocks and, and they're highly associated with rocks in kind of that fall winter springtime uh and then in the summer they kind of move into different habitat so those rocks are important for their thermal biology and i imagine it's fairly similar with the southwestern carpet pythons as well they don't range up too far north so um, they okay. probably, you know, get get as far as maybe Geraldton. Um, well, maybe a little further, but uh, um, definitely not up, toward, you know, towards the um, uh, Shark Bay or anything that, you know, I think Calberry, they, they get up that far for sure. So okay. a little bit north of Geraldton. So that's kind of their upper reaches of their range. And so, and, you know, they, they kind of change in, in appearance a little bit you know they have their their appearance somewhat matches their background the ones that uh, i found and i'll tell you the the next story i don't think i've told that one yet but the um they kind of match the habitat they're in and the ones we found were in a habitat of uh kind of a yeah that coastal dune area where they have some white sand dunes they have some yellow sand areas and then they have this coastal shrub that's kind of a you know, green, bright area. So, you know, the dappled, kind of lighter, darker, high contrast pattern fit in nicely with that kind of habitat. I think they would fit in very well and be very hard to see if they're in their natural environment, you know, and you're looking for them in the daytime or something. Um, right. The one, the second one we found, so um, my uh, friend, friends, uh, Steve Sharp and Mike Fredrickson and I did a kind of a similar tour of the trip that I took in 2013. We did about the same trip in 2014, about a month later. And, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of comparing, you know, what you find a month after, you know, a little bit hotter, a little bit, you know, further into uh, spring towards summer. And uh, so we were walking around. We were basically looking for shingleback skinks or blue-tongued skinks or um, other lizards, you know, we saw a, a Gould's monitor and we were looking in the Pinnacles National Park, which was, um, and you know, this is fairly close to the area where we, where I saw the one on the road previous in the previous year. And actually Steve and Mike and I were cruising during the night in that same area. We saw, I mean, hundreds of geckos, they were all over the place. You almost had to, 
um, drive very slow just to miss them, you know. And, and these are like geckos <laughs> that go for a thousand dollars a pair in the U.S. and they're you know all over the road everywhere. So um, we were uh, driving around, you know, photographing these geckos and checking them out and stuff. And we found another uh, one or two uh, DOR carpet pythons, and they were further south than the ones that I had found in the previous year, but that was the same kind of general area. And so as we were um, searching, you know, we unfortunately we didn't find any alive on the road around that time. And one of the ones that got hit was pretty fresh. I mean, it was out probably that night or the or the day, morning before that. Um, so it, was, it wasn't on the road very long, you know. So we just missed seeing that one in its live form. But again, you know, you kind of take the data as it comes. Um, and we tried to record, you know, all the information, the the exact location and things. But again, it was, it's fairly cool at night, somewhat windy at times. And, you know, in the high seventies around there, even though it's fairly hot during the day. So today we're in the uh, pinnacles. And if you've ever, the pinnacles are a freaking cool place. If you're going to go to Western Australia, make sure you hit that area. It's called Nambung National Park. And uh, it's just this area of yellow sand. And then there's these, pillars of yellow rock just sticking up out of the ground it's just really cool (laughs) and it's like out in the middle of an area you would not expect it it's you know kind of this coastal shrub area and all of a sudden there's just you know yellow sand and it just this little (laughs) area and there's rocks sticking up out of the ground you know big as you know as tall as a house to as as, you know knee high you know they kind of range in size and shape and it's kind of fun to see and you've got, you know, the like the galahs or the those pink uh, parrots that are flying and landing on top of them and stuff. So you've got parrots flying around in the desert, which is very cool as well. And so, and then you've got emus walking around, you know, eating off the shrubs. So you're seeing emus and all sorts of wildlife. We saw a really nice Gouldi eye uh, sand monitor um, out at the the visitor center just kind of in the yard of the visitor center, you know, just beautiful yellow and black, really high contrast animal. Um, so that was another cool find there. Um, and then, so we, we kind of made our way and did the little pinnacles drive and we got out kind of at the end of the loop and did a little searching, just walking around and we noticed these weird trails. And so we followed them for a while and they kind of terminated and there was a shingleback skiing. So, you, you know, you kind of learn to, to see what kind of tracks they make. And this was breeding season, so they were following each other and paired up, and we found you know, pairs together in different areas. So we, I think we found three breeding pairs of these animals, which was kind of cool to see, you know, and see there, because these are a type of animal that pairs for extended periods of time and kind of uh, knows their mate and, and seeks the same mate year after year, which is a pretty rare phenomenon in, in lizards. And so, you know, as we were looking around kind of among the pinnacles and some of this, there, there, some of the areas was a little shrubby. And, and Steve is the lizard guy, right? He's he's looking for lizards. He's, and me and Mike are more carpet python freaks. And he's like, hey, guys, what if the lizard guy finds a carpet python? What do you do then? Yeah. You know, <laughs> so we're like, no way. And we walk over and he picks up this carpet python. And, you know, I kind of wish he would have, you know, I would have been able to photograph it as it was sitting. You know, but basically it was just yeah. kind of resting at the base of one of these pinnacles, just curled up. Now, this individual was in shed, and so it was a little bit ornery and <laughs> kind of striking out and stuff. And, 
And uh, I, you know, I held it for a while, and it didn't bite me, but, you know, it had that S shape, and it's kind of trying to hone in on anything that moves or comes near it, you know. You, you, I'm sure you guys have seen that behavior when you're holding a captive or two that has a little bit of an attitude. <laughs> but, you know, I think it was mainly because it was in shed, you know. And so we set it up on the on one of the pinnacles for some pictures in the tree, you know, kind of right next to where it was found. And so um, got some got some good pictures and then left it and went on our way but that was a cool find to, to see you know that just out in this cool habitat and be able to to find one you know walking around the habitat in the day so it is possible to find them you know when you're out in the right areas and just luck or timing you know that's the way and then you know right after that Steve, while we're photographing the carpet python steve walks over and finds a, a species of dwarf bearded dragon, you know, just right around the corner. Uh, oh, that's also going to minor. So that was pretty cool to see as well. So we got to photograph a few of those individuals in that area as well. So just so much cool things to find over there. I mean, I just, uh, looking for animals in their natural environment and, and being able to find and photograph and kind of take some notes and, and watch them for a while is, is one of the great things about herpeticulture. So, you know, I, I highly recommend if you're considering buying a, you know, $5,000 snake, consider putting that money into a trip to Australia <laughs> and getting over there and seeing them because it's, uh, it really furthers your understanding of these animals and, and what they need to, to thrive, you know. Yeah, I, that's, uh, that's our goal this year. <laughs> All right. Yeah. I, no reptiles. I, We're taking the trip. <laughs> <laughs> right on. <laughs> Uh, cool. Right, Owen? Only selling reptiles yes. this year. No buying reptiles. No buying. <laughs> no, I that got a my hard pair of reptiles. Yeah. It's yeah, definitely no, a sacrifice, <laughs> but well yeah. worth the sacrifice. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. That's cool. So um, let's see. What else do we – so we talk about the uh, – Oh, the – Go ahead. Oh, uh, so um, localities and differences. I mean, we've got that's. I think that's one of the strong points of our book is we've got a lot of different photographs of animals that were found in the wild, and so you can kind of get. An, and that was one of the the cool things, like I mentioned before, in in preparing for this book, is you get to get to see that there is you know just a wide variety of appearances and. You know, in in the carpet pythons, even when they live in close association or very far away from each other, you might have individuals that look very similar. You know, um, for example, on page 142, we've got a, a photo of a specimen from Geraldton that's kind of almost black and white. You know, almost looks you know just very uh, monotone, black and white and gray and things like that. And that's from kind of the northern part of the range in Geraldton. And then you know, and you go um, down into the Perth area, and you see animals that are very similar, you know, uh, towards the, the lower part of the range, or the, I guess the mid part of the range um, along the, the west coast. And then, you know, you can also find animals in the Perth area that are very high contrast and have a little bit of yellows, and you can also find that in, you know, at the north part of the range, like in Calberry, on the, the you know, the tidal 
picture on chapter 8 on page 134. This beautiful, and I think that was one of my favorite animals, is this this animal from Calberry. It's just really high contrast. It's got a little bit of reddish color in the in the spots and, you know, those really broad white lateral stripes. Just a beautiful animal. And then the one I found, you know, the two individuals that we found kind of in in that uh, area of Nambung National Park that are have a lot of yellow and orange and red and, you know, uh, kind of a lighter base color, just gorgeous animals. And there's, you know, there's, there's different appearances. And so you can get a wide variety of looks in this uh, uh, Southwestern carpet python in, in Western Australia. And then, you know, you get over into the gammon ranges and you have appearance that almost looks very similar to a metcalfi. And, uh, you know, kind of has that same arrowhead shape on the head and has a lot of reds in the pattern and, and blacks and creams and, you know, just beautiful animals. So, again, it's, it's I think, uh, environment and habitat are a strong selective pressure for different appearances, and so you're going to get animals that blend in well with where they're found. So if they're right. found in... You know, and so it's hard to define and predict what you're going to find. So you just go off what you find and try to find uh, patterns. And, you know, unfortunately, I don't know that we have enough information in regard to that to, to make a clear distinction to say, you know, if they're found in this habitat, they look like this or, you know, whatever. But, you know, they, there's a, a wide variety of appearances of, of these animals. Okay. And yeah, that's, I went that's to... another another benefit of the... Uh, website, uh, the arod.com.au, um, is that, that they have a little tab. Once you click on a species, you can click click on the tab that says more photos. Now, it's not as, as helpful with the Morelia Splota because it shows photos of all, you know, animals that are classified as Splota. And for some reason, they include Bredeli in that, even though Bredeli has never really been a subspecies of Splota, although some authors include Bredeli as a subspecies, so technically, I guess, some have included that in, in publications, but, uh, you know, I think it's kind of silly to include them as a Spilota subspecies because they're definitely um, range-restricted and, and isolated from other uh, carpet python uh, populations, and they're, you know, very morphologically distinct and, and genetically isolated. So, in my mind, they're obvious, you know, species. So, anyway... Yeah, cool. I went Very to cool. your uh in the uh we have a chat room going on during the show and I went over to your site uh-huh. and uh I put the picture of the pinnacles and I put the picture of that imbricata from your I think it's your two thousand thirteen Western Australia. Uh yeah. Yeah. Man, you have some all if anybody's listening, go over to uh Australiaaddiction dot com and then just go to Justin's spot that he has that's uh it's called Visits. And then you can click on there. Man, you've been around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I've been That's fortunate. Cool. I've been I've been very fortunate to be able to go over and uh, you know see some cool stuff. So yeah, I like to share that experience and be able to show you what I found and kind of the habitat in some cases where I found it. And and, and some of the earlier visits, I had more stamina and put it you know kind of a travel log associated with it. And then later, I just got lazy and put a picture with a small <laughs> caption. So. Right. If you have any questions of, you know, trips I've been on or stuff I've found and what kind of, you know, feel free to message me or give me a call sometime and we can chat about it. <laughs> okay. All right. Cool. So let's, yeah, I'm I'm 
first, um, man, that it just looks like I don't know. It looks like something out of Star Wars or something. When I'm looking at the pinnacles, it's just crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's wild. so foreign. It just it's almost like um, out of you know, just out of the blue. All of a sudden, there's this weird you know, alien habitat right in the middle of, you know, stuff that kind of goes on for miles and miles. It's pretty consistent. And you just got this section of weird stuff. It's cool. Wow. What are, uh, what are, uh, what, what are they eating in the, in the wild? What, what's their prey choice uh, when it comes mm-hmm. to the Morelia imbricata? Yeah. I think that, you know, similar to other carpet pythons, they uh, initially as juveniles, they'll seek out uh, reptiles. So mostly skinks or, or you know other or other lizards, and as they get larger, they switch over to warm-blooded prey. Now, uh, you know especially with some populations of southwest carpet pythons, they'll take fairly large prey. They'll they'll go after you know some larger uh, marsupials, including even some small species of wallaby. So um, they have a fairly diverse. Uh, prey range. Uh, there's been a couple studies that have that have uh, looked at their diet and identified some prey uh, specimens. There's one that was uh, what was year was that 2008 or something? No, 2012 um, that looked at kind of trying to um, make a make a correlation between size and thermal parameters with prey size and the the species that were taken. And they actually found that their hypothesis was uh refuted. So they their their hypothesis didn't hold up. So their their prey species that they select does not correspond with uh large size in regards to thermal stability. So the hypothesis was the bigger animals can hold more heat for a longer period of time, so therefore they can hunt longer after dark and have a better chance of getting more food and and larger food and and be able to digest it well and things like that, where they found that wasn't the case. Um, It was mainly limited by how big they could open their mouth, (laughs) So, which (laughs) makes sense, yeah? You can open your mouth big, you can eat bigger food, so... Um, And so that was kind of refuted in regards to bigger animals can be warmer for a longer period of time. And they found smaller animals out cruising, you know, it was fairly chilly and looking for food and things like that. So, um, uh, you know, there's been some neat studies involving the Imbricata. And like you said earlier, you know, Google Scholar is a great tool. Uh, You can do a search. And a lot of times off to the right-hand side, if you see a hyperlink, you know, like, uh, usually it's like a university or some kind of site that uh, got the full-length uh, article that you can click on and read for free. Um, that's not always the case, unfortunately, and sometimes it's hard to find these publications and get a full, you know, uh, copy. And a lot of times that doesn't help you a lot if you do get a full copy because it's, you know, technical jargon and hard to understand anyway, so it's <laughs> hard to get much out of it. Um, but... Uh, you know, there's that opportunity to read about these things and see some of the studies that have been done with wild populations of, of Imbricata. Cool stuff. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, um, <clears throat> I was wondering if there's any... I think I think it was Sean Christian that said way back in the day, and I can't remember exactly how he put this, but basically he would feed his carpets larger meals um, as like I guess at about a year old, and he found that this kind of kicked them into 
uh, into gear, so to speak, for breeding. I mean, is that does that sound some like is that similar to what mm-hmm. we'd be seeing here or something along those lines? Yeah, or I, what are your thoughts? I think you could say that to some extent. I mean, uh, obviously, you know, the, these are capital breeders, so they the amount of uh, calories and you know energy that they've received over a given time, and they say, you know, some mechanism or switch says, do I have enough to reproduce later on? You know, in the in the breeding season, uh, do I have enough energy to go off feed while I, you know, have eggs in my belly? And you know, do I have enough energy to survive that process and live for another year? And so, you know, they kind of reach that conclusion. So I, I imagine whether you're feeding a lot of small animals or you're eating a, a, a few big animals, as long as you're getting that necessary energy requirement, then you're probably going to be successful at breeding. Now, in captivity, that's fairly easy. And a lot of times we go the opposite direction and get them too fat and obese, and that causes problems as well, as we know, you know, uh, from uh, years of people feeding them way too much, and they don't have very good reproductive success. I think green pythons, green tree pythons, are a prime example of that. You know, they're getting 60 eggs out of a female, but only four or five hatch, and, you know, they're they're not sure why. (laughs) Well, you've got to big fat right. large snake that's not doing well and and you know daniel matouche comes in and says yeah we only found you know 10 <laughs> that have been above thousand grams out of a thousand of them, you know so you got one percent that's uh that's uh getting or less getting uh that big that we think we need to have them in captivity so i think our idea of what you know makes healthy now on the other hand um i think there's something that something really important and and some of my friends in australia have keyed into this is um, you know, cycling by feeding. Now, in the wild, a lot of times they're eating kind of boom or bust, right? They, mm-hmm. During the spring, the their prey species are just multiplying and they're plentiful and they're out eating as much as they can gorge themselves with and they're eating a lot more frequently. And then all of a sudden, you know, that kind of goes away and things slim down and it's a lot harder to catch prey and they're older prey and smarter prey, and so they're not going to be dumb enough to walk in front of a waiting carpet python, you know, so things <laughs> change, and they start eating less and less, and then, you know, so, but I think that that rapid, you know, in captivity, we think, okay, I'm going to feed them once a week, and we feed them once a week, you know, and then they they either do their thing or they don't, but I think we might yeah. be missing missing part of the part of the puzzle here if, if we could reproduce that. Now, what's hard is it's you know, there's not a lot of publications that show how often they feed and when and what months. And so we kind of have to infer a little bit based on other, maybe other papers written, you know, on their prey species. Like when are these things abundant? When are these things getting kicked out of the nest? When are these animals going to have an easy prey item? And when are they probably going to eat more more food? And so then we can say, okay, you know, it's it's around this time, and I'm going to adjust that to North American, you know, uh, cycling, and and try to add that into my cycling. So I'll do a little bit of temperature cycling, and I'll do some feed food cycling, and then mm-hmm. I only have to feed them, you know, very heavily, maybe two or three times a week, but only for you know a couple months, and then the rest of the year they don't really eat, maybe a meal here or there, just to keep them happy or something. I don't know. So they don't bite you all the time. But <laughs> Yeah, that would be so, nice. Yeah. Yeah. Just, and, you that's, know, again, that, uh-huh. that's, that's music to my ears because that's pretty much the what I have just stumbled upon, um, just paying uh-huh. attention to my snakes. Uh, right now, they're like in full feed mode. 
You can't go oh, yeah. by. And mm-hmm. so when I saw that, I just started feeding them. I actually think it was I listened to Vin Russo, and he talked about boas, and that's what he basically did. And he applied the same thing to chondros. So I just said, okay, well, I'm not having six, you know, as the success that I would like. Let me try and see mm-hmm. what this works. And I'll tell you what, it it's worked for the past three years. It's it's great. Like right right now, from like August till about now, I just feed, 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 feed. You know, uh, load yeah. up those the girls and then you know once it's time for them to cool down then i stop and then when they come up again i give them like a, a couple meals and they ovulate right away so, yeah yeah no that's awesome yeah and then i i don't know if you've you guys have i'm sure you've seen the k brothers uh uh they're the oh, carpet yeah. python uh-huh. and black-headed python breeders out of troy and denver kulagowski man those yeah. guys have a key they, they have a down to a T as well, and they're very successful with black-headed pythons and all his pythons, which, you know, some people have struggled to breed, um, mm-hmm. and so, you know, including myself. So I think there's some keys there, and they, they go through and kind of list when they feed and how much they feed and then when they stop, and, you know, there's gives a gives a good idea of, you know, same kind of thing that you're experiencing. You know, that information is very helpful and useful at keeping these animals healthy in, in herpeticulture. Now, Denver's uh, blackheads are huge. Like, when I first saw them, I'm like, you breed these things? <laughs> these are giant. You know, they're, like, really, really big. And, and he said, yeah, every year. They breed every year. And, you know, and most people in the U.S. would tell you, no, they're too fat, they're not going to breed. But he follows a, a food cycling schedule rather than, you know, a weekly thing. And I, I think that really has some keys to success. And I think those, you know, people like you and those guys and, you know, uh, that's that's bringing some really good information to the table. And, you know, to quantify that is very helpful for others trying to have success with some of these species, I think. And, you know, a lot of people say, oh, you can't feed your snakes uh just rats you can't feed black-headed pythons just rats or you won't have success well that's all denver feeds is rats you know and and they're doing just fine again they breed every year you know any individual who wants to breed they'll breed it you know even <laughs> as early as a, a couple of years old you know they they uh they know what they're doing and they get it to get it done so you know a lot of these I think a lot of theories that come out in herpeticulture, you know, when we have issues, you know, you, you might have a good year, and so you go, oh, what did I do different? Oh, I fed a fish a couple times. And you go, oh, yeah, we need to feed a very <laughs> diet, and that's the secret to success. Well, maybe not, you know, maybe it was a flu. Right. And, uh, you know, and that, that speaks again to, you know, keeping good notes, and, you know, I'm kind of guilty of not doing this. I don't keep the best notes. I've I've tried in the past, and I had all these awesome notes, and then, like I upgraded to a different system and I lost them all in the in the switch and so I'm like oh crap there go my notes you know what's the point of this but um, I need to start doing better and take better notes and um, but you know as you get experience it kind of ingrains within you and you kind of know how to do it but you know it's it's helpful to kind of quantify and and also to take to do some controlled studies you know a lot of times I think we have issues. Things like that in herpeticulture where somebody did it and it worked for them, and so all of a sudden that's the only way you can do it, and that's the way it has to be done. You know, everybody has to feed their blackheads fish and or they won't reproduce. Well, you know, maybe not. You know, has anybody tried to prove that scientifically? Have you taken, you know, 10 blackheads and fed them only rodents and 10 blackheads and fed them varied diet and compared your results in the end? 
You know, very few right. people can actually mm-hmm. do that. And so, you know, that's a hard thing to do. I, I'm, I, I started out doing a little study, and unfortunately things uh, <laughs> changed a little bit. My rodent colony gave me issues, and so I had to kind of uh, stop the study, and, and a few factors weren't controlled for. And so I'm going to do it again. But I, I was taking a group of uh, pygmy pythons, uh, Antaresia prudensis, uh-huh. and and uh, separating them into two groups, and I was feeding one some you know mouse legs, and the other group just the tails, trying to see if there's a difference in feeding a mouse legs versus tails to see if they start eating earlier or you know more reliably, and uh, I didn't I didn't uh, get my temps right. I think they were a little cool, and so I need to redo the the study you know again next year, but. You know, I you know kind of failed the the experiment this year. <laughs> so, but I <laughs> right. you know, mainly my main goal is to get them all eating, regardless of how I do. It. So, uh, <laughs> right. Yeah. So, and you know, maybe what you feed them isn't as important as how they're being kept. You know, potentially. So, and I imagine if you fed them, you know, skinks, they might take rodents more readily. You know, once they have a little size on them, but. I don't have a plentiful supply of skiing, so I need to find an alternative way to get them to where I want them to be kind of thing. And right. so, you know, research is kind of the way we can do that. And I think we can provide um, information that can benefit uh, herpetology as well. You know, if, if if you can identify certain things, like when the switch turns on, you know, when, what weight do, you know, mm-hmm. pygmy pythons start eating rodents? You know, you, we could do that. We could say, oh, they probably eat reptiles until they're about this weight, and then they kind of key into to rodents maybe. And, you know, we can kind of test that hypothesis, or somebody can test that hypothesis using, you know, wild specimens or museum specimens or something like that. So um, that's right. a, that's one way we can contribute in some way to the body of knowledge around regarding these animals. I think that's a little bit of a lost, uh, dare I say, art when it comes to uh, to herpetoculture because I think that, uh, you know, with the focus on, you know, producing morphs and all this stuff, it's, it's sort mm-hmm. of lost lost a little track. I see it maybe going on track again a little bit, but sort of lost, yeah. like, trying to figure out. It's like, I guess as soon as you figure out how it breeds, it's like, okay, that's all I need to know. I'm out. You know, yeah. I don't yeah. need to know anymore. Uh, the work know. is done. We don't need to worry about anything else. And we can, no, we can breed true. it and make money. Yes. Yeah. Hooray. Yeah. You know, no more, no more learning. And it's it's kind of like you, you might have a bad clutch, and just like you said, you kind of chalk it up to whatever, you know. It's like whatever happened, yeah. and you chalk it up to that. When you could really be optimizing, you know, your production by really knowing what is really going on. Um Mm-hmm. I don't. That's I find that stuff interesting, but yeah, and and also trying to to you know identify the keys to success with other species, you know, that are less mm-hmm. less actively worked with. Um, I I find that you know exciting, and that's kind of driven some of the latest uh, ventures that I'm going into, you know, keeping different lizards and things like that. But um, you know, it's it's a uh, it's a trick and it takes work and it takes time and it takes energy and sometimes it takes failure to help you learn. And so I think a lot of people are just unwilling to do that with animals they've spent good money on and, 
you know, have, have uh, maybe saved for a long time to get, you know, it's hard to say, hey, go experiment on that animal. So I don't really <laughs> fault anybody for not doing that, you know. And, right, right. And uh, <laughs> so, you know, but but I think if, if they do take that risk and they discover something important and helpful, you know, that's, that's a great thing. And whether or not they share that, you know, I guess if they're going to do the work, they can keep that secret to themselves. But it's always right. nice when they share it with others and, and allow us to kind of benefit from their hard work. And, and, you know, a lot of times we, we don't really think about who who did the work to get us where we are. And I think that, you know, some of these pioneers of herpticulture, uh, you know, you guys mentioned Casey Lazic. He's a great example of, you know, that dedication and, and hard work and trying to figure out some of these things that nobody had bred before. And, you know, he was able to, to get some of these, you know, like the Centralian pythons. You know, that's a... What a what a great work and what what an amazing uh, feat that was you know in the early days to to get that worked out and to discover you know some of the things they needed and you know he was very free to share that information and help others to have success like he did. Right. Awesome. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. Uh, let's see. Um, I know in the uh, in the book uh, the complete carpet. Python, like I said earlier, if you don't have it, you should definitely go out and get it. Go get um, it. Yeah. What are we wasting time for? <laughs> you make you make mention of uh, a unique population of uh, southwestern carpet pythons on the Isle of St. Francis. Can you elaborate on that? Um, yeah, a little bit. I mean, so uh, St. Francis is, you know, obviously an, an island off the off the coast. I, down by South Australia, so it's kind of this um, different area and population um, of, of Imbricata. Um, and the um, we, we touched a little bit on on this uh, um, topic earlier, and uh, you know of, of um, partitioning uh, and males versus females and larger animals versus smaller animals. And this is kind of a unique feature to um, carpet pythons, uh, you know, the, especially in Bricotta. And so um, the Isle of St. Francis is kind of, uh, where is it by? It's by Seduna or Smoky Bay, kind of um, half more on the west side of South Australia, just down along that south coast. Um, and so... These these animals have been uh, found to have a very large difference in male size versus female size. And this has also been seen in other populations, especially island populations of Morelia and Bricotta. Um, so basically, you know, the theory is that these animals um, are separating and, and males from females um, to put them in, you know, I guess different niches where uh, females can take larger prey and males take smaller prey. The females get larger and the males stay really small, actually. And so they don't compete with each other for resources. And this becomes especially important when you're on an island. You know, there's not a lot to go around necessarily. These guys actually, right. I think I think they feed just... Uh, fairly exclusively on, on a type of mutton bird, I believe the females do, and, and the males tend to eat smaller prey, small rodents or, or lizards or whatnot. But uh, mm-hmm. So there's that kind of 
natural or or uh, niche partitioning between the genders, which is which is pretty cool. And so, and that that happens on on other island populations as well. And so, you see this large disparity between male and female size. And I think that's somewhat unique to the uh, imbricata. Um, this also kind of speaks for, um, you know, towards their, the, the, some of the behavioral differences in the imbricata compared to some of the others. And, and in general, of southern, south, more south-ranging carpet pythons, like uh, potentially diamond pythons, and, well, definitely diamond pythons and potentially uh, metcalfi, where they don't have male-to-male combat. You know, you got a little wimpy male. They're not going to fight each other. Well, why waste their energy, especially when you're living on an island, living on a scant diet? Um, whereas, um, so, and and they won't uh, fight for, for females, so they just kind of follow the female around, take turns with their breeding. They don't have to fight and show each other who's boss to be able to win uh, favor, you know, breeding favor with the female. So I think this is a, a fairly unique strategy and, and is found more fre- frequently with these island specimens and is very interesting as far as uh, carpet pythons because it de- you know defies the norm of big males that fight with each other to win the favor you know to be able to breed with the females in the area so mm-hmm. um, kind of unique and and an adaptation similar. You know, to the diamond pythons where they're adapted to the cooler climates and and the you know less um, a, a shorter feeding window and shorter you know breeding window and things like that because they have periods of inactivity when it's too cold and so you know same kind of thing they live on a small island they don't have a lot of resources so why waste time fighting might as well just get along and take turns you know free love whatever so. <laughs> <laughs> But All right. That's kind of the, the idea behind that, and so it's a unique population, and it's kind of weird, you know. It's out out off the coast quite a ways, and and you've got a population of carpet pythons. We we tried to secure a photo of these guys for the book, and and we didn't get permission in time. By the time the book was printed, and I think uh, we had to pay for the picture. You know, it's just too hard. There's just uh, too small of a profit margin on these books to be paying people for pictures, and so we had to say, well. Oh well, I guess we won't have a Isle of Saint Francis picture. But I think Nick may have secured a picture for maybe uh, the next revision of the Complete Carpet Python. So we'll see how that goes and see if we end up doing a revision down the road. But that's something that we'd like to include in that, if, if possible, just because it's something unique and different, and and not not a, not a lot of people know about them or talk about them. So we thought we'd at least make mention of that. Right, that would be wow. that would be cool. The the more complete carpet python, or yeah. whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Now, you know, you were talking about the size difference, but I just want to uh, so people know in the book you talked about mature males weighing in at about three hundred and five grams. Um, <laughs> That's pretty small. <laughs> that is that, that is tiny. That's that an antaresia right there. Yeah. That's a very small snake. <laughs> so, yeah, 300 grams, and the females are, you know, magnitudes greater than that. I mean, they're, you know, up in the normal carpet python range. You know, some of these uh, populations, I think it's Garden Island over on the west coast of Western Australia. Um, they all, you know, those females are 
quite a bit larger than the males. And, you know, those other populations show some of that disparity. Now, the mainland, mainland populations are not quite as dramatic as the island populations, but there are also some documented uh, populations on the mainland that have larger ma- larger females than males. And so it's fairly consistent across the range to some extent, but it's more exaggerated on the more resource-poor islands, I think, is, is the more likely um, scenario there. Right. Now, <clears throat> you know, uh, there was um, also there was a paper that talked about um, that uh, females were more arboreal than males. Do you have any thoughts on on that? Why that would be? Um, that's a good question. Um, you know, typically as, as carpet pythons get larger, they tend to be more terrestrial than uh, arboreal. So. I'm not quite sure on that one. Um, it could be because the prey they're chasing lives up in trees, but again, I'm not sure. Maybe it's just uh, a matter of um, good, you know, habitat is available in the trees. Perhaps they use tree hollows to hide out during the day, and um, they're big, so they can kind of be the boss and take those good uh, hiding spots. Or they're seeking uh, nesting birds. I know with uh, uh, Centralian carpets, Morelia bretoli, they will oftentimes utilize tree hollows, especially um, during, you know, high, uh, during the bird reproductive season. So they're up looking for prey in the tree hollows and finding these nesting birds. And uh, they'll eat a large percentage of birds during a certain time. Now, as things dry out and the grasses kind of go away and the nesting birds, you know, fledge and they get out of the nest, then they're down more on the ground looking for rodents. So, depending on what time of year you're looking for bretolite, you're either going to be trying to spotlight them in a tree or you're going to be looking more down on the ground, you know, based on um, the conditions, the environment. And so, you know, gotcha. another thing that you you might learn if you're you're out looking and saying, okay, now during this part of the year, I'm seeing them up in trees and this part of the year they're down on the ground. And so that, that information helps somebody like, you and I in America where it costs a lot to get over to Australia and we want to maximize our chances of finding these things. So we're going to want to go right. when it's, you know, maybe a little easier to find them or they're more frequently found and, and cited, you know, so that's, uh, right. we appreciate that information. And so we can, we can, we can observe and experience these animals in their natural habitat. Yeah, that would be amazing. Um, mm-hmm. What is known about these guys as far as reproduction in the wild? Um, they're they're probably a typical um, spring breeder. Uh, they you know they'll mm-hmm. they'll uh, have you know a little bit colder winters and a period of inactivity. Especially, I know they did a, did some research on this Garden Island population and they kind of watched them over the seasons and and found that they did have a period of dormancy during the cooler areas or cooler times of the year and uh, would seek shelter and kind of wait it out until things warmed up a bit. And then they'd resume feeding and and they'd actually breed, uh, you know, later on in the year. And I think in captivity that's been the case as well. Um, Give them a cooling period and and breed them after they come out of the cooling. And again, you know, I don't have any firsthand experience, so I could be way off. And and that's going to be a question for your next guest that talks about Embricata they can maybe uh, correct me and tell me how how wrong I am and what an idiot I am. So <laughs> I'm, uh-huh, I'm fully welcome. I fully welcome that, and that's that's just fine if you know they have better information than I do. So, 
but I would anticipate they're they're spring breeders and they come out and do their thing. Now, maybe more of the the northern reaches of their population, maybe they they breed earlier, you know, during the winter when it's not quite as cold and you know the days heat up a little hotter, especially you know as you get into summertime and um, you know so it's hotter maybe during the winter as well, during, you know the daytime temperatures, so they can be out, be active, and be seeking mates. Um, but again, I don't know if that's a, if there's any kind of regional variation in their reproductive strategies, or if it's uh, you know kind of a, a general spring breeding system throughout the range. Um, I met, I would almost uh, certainly expect the South Australian populations to be spring breeders. Um, at Cafi are spring breeders, and you know they're they're similar in that area. And again, I mean, that Cafi range all the way up into Queensland. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's that's another question. Do the northern populations differ in their reproductive strategies than the southern populations? And I don't think anybody really knows that or has done much work on that. And maybe if we tried that out with our, you know, captive populations, we'd get some insight into that. Do we really need to give them such a low um, temperature during the breeding season? I think with Bredeli, um you know, we've asked that question, and, and some people have, and, and with diamonds as well. I mean, Terry Phillips spread them without much of a, a temperature drop, and you know, no real difference in in his keeping regimen, and he got viable babies without much of a, a winter time drop. So, you know, have we just not done the re, done the experiments <laughs> again? You know, are we not <laughs> are we being lazy and just going off of what people have done before? Or, do they really need right. that? Is it necessary? I like that example that Terry gives of, you know, well, you find rattlesnakes in areas where it snows, but we're not shoveling snow into our cages. You know, they <laughs> do they need that or, mm-hmm. or do they just endure it, you know, because that's where they're at and that's what they have to do. And Maybe uh, different conditions. If you have a mild winter, maybe they're out earlier and they're breeding earlier and they're capitalizing on a, you know, a longer feeding season or getting prepared for a potential drought. Who knows what these animals are tuned into or if they just kind of go off, oh, it's warm enough, I'm getting out there, I'm breeding, you know, or do they really need that drop? And I think with some animals they've shown that the lower temperatures promote, uh, you know, development of spermatozoa, and so they need that lower temperature to be able to produce viable offspring. So, again, you know, we're we're not sure, but that's kind of what I would anticipate. Cool. With the yeah. So, um, would you say these things are uh, safe species or threatened in the wild? Um, I think it depends where you go. I mean, I think up in the northern reaches of their habitat, it's it's a little more uh, less populated, more a little more um, protected, or uh, certainly within areas of national parks like Nambung. Their populations mm-hmm. are probably stable, and that you know that bears out when I find a bunch of you know DORs in that same area. Then yeah, there's probably a healthy population there, and it probably is helped by you know protecting that environment and making it a national park. I think that's you know increasingly becoming a problem as as the people move in and and things. Um, start getting developed for, for planting of crops or for putting in housing or, or mining or different things like that, it pushes, you know, the wildlife out to some extent. And so, you know, it's a good thing we have some of these areas and it's, you know, hopefully 
they'll keep those intact or expand them and in, introduce more areas that they can conserve uh, the wildlife. And hopefully we don't end up with a situation like the inland carpets where they're just a fragmented population kind of trying to eke out an existence on the edge of, you know, uh, these fields of uh, from human interruption. Um, you know, in the West, Western Australia, you know, they talk about the wheat belt. You know, you've probably heard about the wheat belt. And the wheat right. belt is a ginormous expanse of wheat fields. I mean, it's as far as the eye can see, and it goes on for miles and miles and miles. And you're just like, okay, when am I going to get out of the wheat belt? Like, I'm sick of being in the wheat belt. <laughs> and so, you know, <laughs> you know we, we talk about wheat belt Simpsons pythons. Well, they're kind of an island, you know, refuge. They find a... a some intact habitat within that area, and that's about the only place they can survive. You're not finding them in wheat fields, you know, maybe on the edges to try to catch rodents or something. But um, so, you know, human interruption does have an effect on on the wildlife. And so hopefully they have enough, um, you know, state forests or national parks that they can kind of preserve their habitat and, you know, be be healthy in their, in their populations. Did I get off? topic what was the original question there? <laughs> uh, are, are they safe or threatened you, you okay kinda yeah. did, but you kind of didn't you're good <laughs> i think Uh-oh. right now they're fairly fairly stable fairly safe yeah fairly not, stable. not too threatened but but you know again they you know that uh progressive human encroachment is threatening them to some extent especially no in some areas and some habitats yeah that 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 would that makes some sense that that would happen yeah unfortunately but uh, now with Australian addiction, um, how was your 2015 season? And uh, have you given any thought to your 16 season? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I was always thinking about the next season. That's uh, important. And uh, this year was good in some areas and, and not so good in other areas. I, I had a great year of Enteresia production, and I'm sitting on a lot of Enteresia babies that I'm trying to get uh, feeding reliably and, and hopefully have them ready to go within the next month or two. So if you're looking for Prothensis or Stimsoni or Children Eye, I've got, you know, bucket loads of those and uh, should have some really nice stuff. So contact me if you're interested. Um, The carpet python front, not so great this year. All the carpet eggs that I got end up crashing during incubation, and I'm not quite sure. Uh A couple of those were from first-time breeders, and another t- another was uh, who knows what. I may not have gotten cool enough, you know. So maybe some of my experimentation gone awry. <laughs> so hopefully this next year will be a little better with the carpets, and we'll get uh, more uh, varied production rather than just a bunch of antresia. I was able to get a get some blue tongue skinks uh, produced this year, and those have been very popular and done very well and uh, very nice individuals. And so I've uh, actually uh, picked up a couple more females and another male. So hopefully I'll have a couple more litters of, of the uh, blue tongue skinks. They're the Northern blue tongue skinks. Um, So I'm not having fun working with those. They're pretty cool. So, you know, next I I did produce a clutch of Womas, but didn't have the best luck with the eggs and I lost uh, several of the eggs. I, thought they were wow. too dry, and so I added water to half of them, and, you know, I split them up into two different. I was trying some experimentation with egg incubation medium. I was trying that uh, a little uh, clay pellet thing, mm-hmm. and it looked really dry, so I added more water, and then, like, a couple of days later, the eggs were all moldy and going downhill. 
whereas the other ones that I kept on vermiculite perlite mixture uh, hatched just fine, and so I have a nice little pair of walnuts that is doing well and progressing well, and they look fantastic. So they're a fun species to work with. Hoping to add a couple new species to the list. I'd like to produce some uh, um, olive pythons this year. That would be great. Nice. Got a pair or two that could go this year. Um, Darwin's, I need to produce Darwin still. I've got a couple prime pairs that should produce this year, and so that'll be nice to have some Darwin's and some nice Inland's, uh, Malgline and the kind of the uh, price line mixture with uh, unrelated male. So those are uh, some of the holdbacks that I've kept from those both those lines have just turned out phenomenal. So I'm hoping to intensify some blues in those and get some cool looking stuff. So, very cool. Yeah. Very very cool. Um, is there anything you've been like waiting to pair up, like dying to pair up? <laughs> um, uh, a few things. I mean, I I guess I like to pair up just about anything I have. I need to produce a freaking super zebra. I can't believe I haven't produced one. Well, I produced one, but it died shortly after, oh. you know, before before hatching. But I'd really like to produce a nice super zebra that's a pure jungle and from some nice refined zebras that are high yellow and looking good. So hopefully that'll happen this year. But that that would be nice to do. But I, I need to produce more jungles. Jungles are always fun to watch grow up and yeah, change. Everybody likes jungles. Um, <laughs> yeah, they're, they're fun. I enjoy working. You know, if I was nailed down and had to admit to my favorite, I'd probably pick a jungle carpet python. Just you know, historical reasons as well as just visually, they're so cool and appealing. So I like the jungles. <laughs> yeah, it's it's hard Very to beat cool. yellow and black. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's cool. Um, so the other thing that uh, we wanted to talk about was the. Um, I personally love your podcast, Herpological Discussions. Um, oh, thank you. Are we going to be seeing a new episode anytime soon, or? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I know. It's been uh, I've just been so just crazy busy. Like every weekend, I'm gone somewhere else. So you know, this this next weekend, I'll be home again. I've got one that I've read a good paper on Egernia skinks, and I'm planning on you know, it's kind of a longer paper, more of a. a review article so it covers like all the species of Virginia and you know all these different aspects of their uh, natural history and 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 you know some really cool stuff so you know I'll have that out uh, I I don't know when I'm going to get out but hopefully very <laughs> soon you know that may be a relatively rel- you know very soon it might be in uh, evolutionary very soon like in the next you know, a thousand years. Uh, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> but but I, still yeah, I definitely need to contribute to that. Yeah, I'm still. It's still yeah, on my mind, and I still. I'm feeling guilty that I haven't gotten a new one out. But yeah, I. And you know, if anybody's out there that wants to to do one and wants to record their summary of an article, if it's you know if it fits and it sounds good, I'll throw it on there for you. So we'll see. Um, maybe have some tryouts. I don't know, but <laughs> be good to get some. Get, Get somebody else's input, and then you know, again, if anybody thinks I'm you know, way off base in my analysis of a paper, they're welcome to tell me I'm full of crap. So that's always welcome <laughs> as well. Maybe be nice about it, but you know. uh, nothing wrong with a little bit of a debate, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and you know, I, I hopefully things will settle down where I can 
have them coming out a little more regularly. And, you know, I'm working on a, a new book with uh, Steve Sharp on the knobtail geckos, so maybe some of them will have to revolve around knobtails for a while while I do research for the book and focus on knobtail papers. But, <laughs> you know, it kind of <laughs> ebbs and flows with my interests or my projects or whatever, you know, like if I if I want to read about a Gurneus king, sure. Yeah, actually, somebody uh, recommended that. You know, asked, "Hey, can you do one on a Gurneus?" So I, sure, I'll do that. And then it's just kind of drug on for a little while because it was a really long paper and had a lot of information. So I'm trying to figure out how to digest that into a you know a fifteen twenty minute show. So <laughs> that can be a right. challenge. But <laughs> yeah, uh, going long winded here. You know, it's almost uh, two hours in, so <laughs> I, uh, I can tend to tend to ramble on. So. Uh, uh, but yeah, that's I definitely need to get more out. So, uh, yeah, I'll, do a great uh, job. So. I appreciate awesome. it. Thanks, thanks for the input. Yeah. Um, and uh, last but not least, we have uh, we have a couple questions from Rob Stone. Uh, he uh, he mm-hmm. wanted to know. Uh, let's let's talk about this one first. Um, I noticed that you were doing some wood burning. Um, uh huh. And uh, you know what you got you started in it. Um, are, do you sell those things, and uh, you know, how do you can? Are you like taking commission for it? I mean, can somebody come <laughs> to you and say, "I want a, you know, I don't know, uh, inland carpet"? You know, do it up or yeah. what? How's it work? <laughs> well, no, yeah, that's uh, that's I I really enjoyed doing. It. I just kind of um, I I think I was in a craft store with my wife. She was buying something. She's always doing some crafty stuff, and and I saw this little you know wood burning tool on the, on one of the aisles, and I'm like. Oh, that looks kind of cool, and I, you know, looked at the little books they had there, and so I said, oh, I'll try it. So I bought one of the wood burning tools and a piece of wood. I think I grabbed a scrap piece of wood out of my garage or something, and and just started doing it. I'm like, this is kind of cool, you know. I like this, and so I got a real piece of wood and did one, and it looked pretty good. You know, I was happy with it, and so you know, I've always been somewhat artistic. I drew quite a bit, you know, when I was younger, and um entered contests and stuff when I was a kid and just had drawn and I hadn't been able, you know, I hadn't drawn for a long time or painted. I really like watercolors and, you know, kind of pen on uh, ink and uh, on paper and stuff like that. So I thought this was a fun thing to try and it worked out well. And so I started uh, doing a few and I, I was just kind of doing the ones I liked and, whoa, are you selling that? How much you want for that? And so I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I, I guess I am. I so, sure I, so, I guess I am yeah. now. Yeah, and so then I got kind of excited, and I bought, like, a ton of wood, and so I've got all these chunks of wood hanging around my room and <laughs> stuff. My wife's, like, tripping over stuff. I'm like, oh, sorry, Ann. But, uh, um, you know, I, I started taking, you know, requests for commissions, and I, I guess I've kind of changed my method a little bit because a lot of times, you know, it's hard to get uh, money out of herpsculturalists, herp so, you know, like, bleeding <laughs> from a stone and stuff. I think from now on I might have to ask for stuff up front, you know, money up front if I'm going to do a commission piece. But <laughs> cause a lot of people are right. oh, will you do this for me? And then I do it, and then they're like, oh, uh, yeah, let me uh, work That's on you that money. That's a lot of money. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, you know, I, I've kind of, I don't know, I, I priced them starting around 150 bucks, and kind of depends on the size and the complexity of the picture. But, you know, I've, I, uh, I'm working on one right now. It's a thorny devil, a Moloch, so... We'll see how that works out, but um, you know, I I, uh, I almost have have to switch up my tactics and say, you know, I'll have to do uh, money up front if we're going to do a commission piece, <laughs> or at least half or something, you know. And then if you don't like it, then you can 
say never mind or I don't know. <laughs> right. Spell it elsewhere, but yeah. I guess that's uh, what you do with uh, artwork. So I don't know. I'm yeah. still trying to learn how to best do this or <laughs> figure it out. But it's I, I really enjoy it. It's kind of a nice way to. My wife's uh, going back and finishing up her bachelor's degree, and so she's doing homework at night. So I just sit and wood burn while I watch TV or you know whatever, listen to your guys's podcast. So <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah, it's a nice go. way to nice way to spend the time. Cool. That's cool. That's cool. Well, yeah. I'm, I'm going to commission I Justin to do one of my face to give to you, Eric. So it's like a wood burning of me. <laughs> <laughs> you can hang in your house all the oh. time. Yeah. Lovely. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I don't know if um, I can let that one go. I might have to keep that one and put it up. Yeah, on I know. It'd be, it'd be magical. <laughs> yeah. Get an autograph. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. That's cool. Um, and then the uh, the other thing that he noticed is that uh, you had posted up some uh, horned lizards. Uh, can you oh, yeah. tell, can you tell us about yeah. that? And, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so this this kind of goes back to my past when I was a kid. I went to scout camp and uh, I was you know I got up one morning and I was just kind of hiking around exploring the camp. Out, I think I climbed the fence or something. I was outside of the boundaries, <laughs> and all of a sudden I'm walking along this hillside. And I see this fat little tank running around. I'm like, holy crap, it's a horn toad, you know, horny toad. So I, I pick it up, and I'm just checking this thing out. And then I look over, and there's another one running around. And there's, like, 20 of them on this hillside. I'm like, this is awesome, you know. And, then, you know, they weren't very fast, but they were easy to catch. And they were kind of weird and cool looking. So I'm like, oh, yeah. And, that, you know, I was already into lizard snakes and stuff. And so um, it was already a big passion of mine. So I, I brought them home and, uh, you know, kept them kept them uh, in a tank and I thought, you know, they need some natural sunlight. So I put them outside in their tank and I was watching them and they seemed to be enjoying the sun. And then I think I got distracted and went in the house and did something. And I'm like, Oh crap, I, the lizards and I run outside and they all cooked. So I felt like a total tool, you know, I just cooked all these lizards. And, and then, so I kind of, in the back of my mind, I was always thinking someday I'm going to try those again and do it right, you know, and do it, do it well. So, um, this, Last year, uh, I was able to go to, you know, go back to this area, and I tried to find the place where I found these things, and it was a miserable failure. So, <laughs> luckily, I had a, a friend that told me where I could find a, a healthy population, and we found, like, eight of them in an hour, you know, right at dusk. And uh, so, they're, you know, very healthy, plentiful population. So, I collect, I think it's legal in our state to collect three of them, and so I collected the, the legal amount and brought them home, and and kept them, you know, and so I've just been uh, trying to keep them happy and healthy, and so far it's doing a pretty good job. Two of the females, incidentally, were gravid, and so they had babies, and <laughs> so I was to my <laughs> oh, great. eyeballs and baby horn lizards, so it was really fun, because they're about the cutest little reptile you can find. They're tiny, and, and they they can take down a harvester ant for crying out loud, you know? <laughs> like, I was wow. just on a, on a camping trip with, uh, down in the desert, and I was walking around, you know, I was looking at these Indian, uh, you know, pictographs on the walls of the canyon. And, and I'm sitting there just, you know, marveling at this cool pictograph. And all of a sudden an ant, you know, a harvester ant bit me on the toe uh, <laughs> while I was standing there in my, you know, sandal. And it it felt like my painful, you know. And mm, these wow. tiny little, you know, inch-long babies are eating these things. You know, that's a pretty dangerous <laughs> prey item. <laughs> Wow. Um, Jeez. Yeah, they're they're impressive little animals. Like 
And, the, you know, the nice thing about the montane species is they have a fairly diverse diet. And the other nice thing about, you know, keeping horn lizards in captivity is now there is a, a commercial supply of ants. So you can mail order ants and buy them just like you would crickets or anything else. And so, you know, it's fairly really? easy to feed them their proper food items. Yeah, they, incidentally, the, the ant supplier is from Utah. So, you know, I oh, well, get these, convenient. just yeah. order, the, order the ants and they come, you know, a couple of days later and it works out well. So I've been keeping the uh, this uh, species that's local to Utah. They're the um, Phrynosoma hernandezi or the greater shorthorned lizard. And, uh, and so I was... Uh, the, I was talking with this guy on campus because I was headed down the south or to you know, southern Utah to St. George to go herping down there. So I was asking him for you know some advice on any you know spots that are good to go check or herp or whatever, and or if he wanted to come along, you know. And he's like, well, I can't come this time. And then when I got back, he's like, hey, do you know anybody who has experience with horn lizards? And I'm like, Funny you should ask. I do. <laughs> and so he's like, well, we, this kid uh, went on vacation and he caught these uh, desert horn lizards, uh, Phrynosoma platyrhinos, and brought them home and, and didn't know what to do with them. So, he, you know, he gave them to his teacher, and his teacher didn't know what to do with them. So she gave them to us, and we don't really know what to do with them. So why don't you take there them? There you go. <laughs> they say we, we contacted the Fish and Wildlife Department, and they never called us back. So, you know, we can't really keep them. So we'd rather have them in capable hands than have them sit here and languish. And so do you want them? And I said, sure. And so now I've got two species of horn lizard. <laughs> so it's been uh, an adventure and I, I hope I'm doing them justice and I hope to be able to reproduce them and make those available to people. Um, most of the babies that I produced, I sent down to Steve Sharp in Arizona and, and he works for the Phoenix zoo and they were going to put a few on display there. So, um, and then, uh, you know, who knows what, what will happen next year. Hopefully I can repeat, you know, lightning will strike twice and I get some, get some <laughs> more baby uh, baby horn lizards. They're a blast to work with. But I feel like I'm kind of redeeming myself from that failure when I was a kid and trying to <laughs> be able to oh, allow other people to have the experience to work with captive bred animals instead of taking them from the wild. You know? Right. That's awesome. That is awesome. I love that cool. kind of stuff because then you're you're taking it for a purpose and you're not just gonna yeah. like, you know, have it sit in a cage and kill it. Anyway, yeah, and that's always <laughs> again that's always kind of bugged me. You know, this idea of you know kind of uh, just taking animals and selling them. You know, I don't I don't really like that. I I, I think it, you know a more sustainable approach is to take you know what you need to breed and and set up a, a viable colony and then breed those animals and make those available so you know you end wild collection with your efforts you know that's yeah. kind of the goal that I have when I when I take on projects like this is to be able to provide them to people you know to, so they can have the experience without having to take them from the wild so that's kind of the and this is more of a uh, what do you call it maybe a uh project that's not really financially based. I mean it's gonna cost me a lot more than you know, I don't I don't think I'm allowed to even sell the ones, you know, the the shorthorn lizards. I'd probably have to give those away. So as long as somebody pays shipping and is gonna work with them responsibly and provide for them, I'm happy to, you know, provide them with some some of these greater shorthorn lizards. And they're probably the, the best introductory species to work with anyway because they're pretty, you know, they eat a variety of insects. So you can feed them some crickets and some beetles along with, you know, kind of that staple 
ant diet. So I would recommend at least half their diet be ants, and then the others can be, you know, dubia nymphs or crickets or bean beetles or whatever, you know, you like to fill in the rest. That's awesome. That's it. Yeah. That is very cool. I mean, you you would find, too, I mean, I think my thought would be that if you introduce somebody to uh, a species and they really like it, typically they usually care about the environment that that species is from as well, you know? I mean, you know, listen to us talk about Australia, you know? (laughs) It's just Mm -hmm. like, that's like the Mecca, you know? We wouldn't want anything to happen to that place, so... Yeah, you want it to be there for when you, you know, make it over. Eventually get over there, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that was that was the heartbreaking thing was to go over, you know, kind of hit Darwin and not see any of these uh, Panoptes monitors, you know, the big uh, Argus monitors that tripod and look over the grass. You know, you see all these iconic photos of these big monitor lizards in the Darwin area, and you go up there now, and they're very scarce. They're very hard to find because the stupid cane toads move through. You know, uh, I just I recommend getting over to Western Australia before the cane toads make it over there, or some other thing occurs. You know, that kind of reduces the number of animals that you can find. I remember we moved through one area of Western Australia, and it was like uh, Mad Max, like post-apocalyptic wasteland, because there were goats feral goats everywhere and they were eating all the vegetation and it looked horrible you know i'm thinking man this is just sad to see all these invasive creatures you know kind of ruining things for the natives um yeah it's a a sad state when that occurs so you know get over see it before it's uh you know before it's ruined by uh people (laughs) (laughs) unfortunately you know the way things tend to go we yeah. kind of screw stuff up. <laughs> yeah. 2016, that's when it's happening. Yeah, yep. <laughs> that's yep. the time. Yep. There you go. That happen. <laughs> All right, Justin, uh, why don't you uh, toss out your contact information if somebody wants to get in touch with you to talk about papers or interested in animals or if they want to commission a wood burning of my face <laughs> or something like that. Uh, how would they get in contact with you? Um, I, you know, my contact information can be found on my website, australianaddiction.com, or uh, connect with me on Facebook at Australian Addiction Reptiles Facebook page or my personal web page or Facebook page uh, under Justin Julander. Um, happy to connect with anybody and chat reptiles or whatnot. Uh, so if you've got a really burning question, you can find my contact information on my website and give me a call. But, um, yeah, happy to happy to talk with just about anybody. Awesome. <laughs> Even up. Awesome. Even up. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's pushing it a little bit, but you know. <laughs> I can only jump in for two hours, and then there's weeks in between. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh man. Well, thanks so much for coming on, Justin. Uh, I appreciate no spending some time it's been with a us. Pleasure. Tonight. Pleasure as always, guys. Thank you. All right. Have a good night. Good you night, too. Justin. We'll see you later. Bye. Bye bye. Okay, well, there we go. Are you, my, uh, are you pleased with my, your Embracada episode? Yeah, I'm going to have to listen back to this one because there's, yeah. uh, there's a ton of information there that, uh, you know, uh, I, I always like listening to Justin. Uh, what an awesome guy. Such a positive dude, too, you know? I mean, you find that it was funny. Rob sent me a. a 
he sent me this picture of something earlier and he was he was kind of a little frustrated at you know what it was about and it was just so negative you know what and the, uh, is it the stupid thing on the website that with the stupid in the selling no no it, it has no, something not to, that no right. it had something to do with rhino rat snakes and you know yeah, just, right. he gets but it's just you know it's such a breath of fresh air to have uh-huh. you know positive it inspires me to be positive and stay positive and pump down pump. You know what I mean? I'm excited. And, 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 and enjoy the goddamn hobby. I mean, yeah. what, I, what, I love, what I love is that, like, we're talking to Justin, and he's, he's wandering in the outback after his wife has given him permission to stay until darkness to find this <laughs> one snake as he follows it filming. And I'm like, that is amazing. And yet, on the other hand, I'm looking over at Facebook, and people are bitching because a bunch of uh, – Freaking wholesalers and dealers and flippers and inexperienced people are dropping prices or misrepresenting carpet pythons. Get to the freaking point of the hobby, and it is to love your animals, to breed your animals, and to have goddamn fun. And I'm going to have a freaking ball with my <laughs> animals, and I don't give a rat's ass what I sell them for or what other people are selling, some shit that looks like my animal. They aren't my animals. It's not my business, and I'm gonna have goddamn fun with it. And if I <laughs> and I want to be Justin in the middle of the freaking outback, <laughs> wandering at night, wow. God, I would love to do that. Oh my god, we're, uh, we're gonna get back to Australia, and I'm gonna be like, I have nothing left now. There's there's no point. You guys are gonna go like you, you people over here sniveling over twenty bucks. I don't care. I've been yeah. in the wild with. Shut up. Yeah, I think I think that's kind of been you know, that's what I was trying to say during the show. It's like it's that that whole thing of like trying to figure out how a species works and like taking it to the next level and like really trying to hone in on what's going on and like yeah. it's it seems like you know, he talked about Casey Lasik and how, you know, he like did all this work to get us to this far and I think it's kind of up to us to take it even farther. You know, for the next generation of herpers that are coming into the uh, into the into the hobby, um, yeah. you know, because yeah. I think it is true. I, I mean, you know, people can say what they want about whether or not you should keep animals in captivity or not, but I think in the long term, you 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 appreciate these animals, which then makes you take a step back and maybe appreciate the environment that they're from. And I think, I don't know, I think that's just an all-around all, all around good thing, you know? Um, it is. It is. It's a completely good thing. I mean, in the bare bones of it, we're all naturalists. I mean, we all care about the environment. We all care about the animals that are hanging out. Like, can you imagine, like what he just said about the cane toads, can you imagine having been there before and then going back after the cane toads? I mean, how heartbroken would you be if, yeah. you know, you went there, you saw everything, it was all great, and then you saw it all destroyed. I mean, I, I would be sick, but I mean, and that's the honest part of it. And, and going back to what you said about Casey Lazy, Casey, like saw these animals, we take for granted so much, the animals that we have currently in their herpticulture. At one point, somebody had to be a pioneer with a species and Casey yeah. has a numerous animals to his, uh, um, repertoire. So does Tom Yogan. I mean, we're, we're looking at, uh, what is it? Uh, one of our guys, I think, um, one of the up and comers, who's really going to be one of those staple guys, Chad Gray. I mean, he's breeding everything and <laughs> he's doing it right. And I mean, I love that guy. He's freaking hilarious, but yeah. I mean, 
and he's got some gorgeous animals. So it's just, it's, it's what you want to be in the hobby. If you want to be one of these guys who really wants to focus on these things on the next level and figure out what makes them tick, figure out what we can do to do to breed different species, harder species. I mean, I, I love my Morelia. I love my carpet pythons. I love trying to lock in that next new morph or take my project to the next level. But I also love the off the cuff stuff. I mean, my savus are psychopaths, but I can't wait to breed them. Same thing with the water <laughs> pythons, the olives. I, I'm I'm just gearing back up with the white lips again. You know, white lips are so close to my heart; it's ridiculous. And <laughs> I want I want to do these weird stuff because I don't see that many of them out there. And that's what originally drew me to carpet pythons. You don't see that many out there, so um, it, it, it's almost like if this is something that makes you tick, this whole naturalistic stuff, like with Justin. I would recommend finding a species that you're passionate about that maybe isn't bred that often in captivity and then go full bore, go out there, see what happens. If you can travel to where they're from, freaking do it. Have some fun. Yeah. I mean, I, I just, I have to, I have to make it to, I have to make the pilgrimage. I mean, and, and you know, what's so hard. What's so hard is that there's so Australia is so big and there's so many different if carpet pythons were from like some tiny little island it'd be like perfect let's go do the whole freaking island but no they're from a giant ass continent and all yeah. different parts and the thing is it's not like australia is like the size of pennsylvania it it, it is massive so yeah. it's like multiple trips would be needed to see all the different species and you know what you might have a trip where you don't see any. Like what was Justin said, he went and he didn't see any carpet pythons at one time. So, but what's I think what's cool though is the the fact that you know and uh, did I lose you, Owen? Yeah. No, I'm okay. Right. okay. The fact that you, I mean, yeah, my goal would be to see carpet pythons, but I think of going up to like the Cape York Peninsula. You know, mm-hmm. I mean. Not only are you going to see carpet pythons, but you can find green tree pythons and you can find scrub pythons. And you know, yeah, yeah. I, I, want see, <laughs> I want to see saltwater crocodiles just so I can feel very well, inferior. You, you <laughs> can see. And I would never be looking at body of water the same. <laughs> yeah, so. I would be. A, I would be a Scooby snack to a uh, oh <laughs> to God. a saltwater crocodile. You know, that is an animal the size of an SUV. Let us now go <laughs> away from it. I mean that that. Yeah. Your God, you know uh, when I was down when I was down in Florida um, at the uh, uh, what was it uh, the Saint Augustine Crocodile yeah. uh, Farm. Yes, yeah. I never really understood how big those. I mean, I've seen Steve Irwin jump on the back of those things forever. You know, yeah. but kind of when you, you see it in person, was, having uh, these things come at him try to murder him on a regular basis. <laughs> Yeah, it's just like, oh man, it yeah. just it took it to a whole new level. And that's that's kind of like what my thing is with wanting to go to Australia so bad. It's like to go into that environment to feel what it's like, you know, it's just it's just you get a I think you just get a whole better understanding of what's going on and uh yeah. Yeah, that's going to happen this year with or without you, my friend. <laughs> next year, you next year. I that's already told I mean. you. 2016. 2016. It's 2015. Yeah, 20- Don't yeah. We're what, three months away? Come on. Shut up. I want those three months, <laughs> all right? <laughs> you know, so, uh, 
yeah, I like I said, you know, make sh- go over and uh I was I, I was sharing it during the show um over on our uh uh chat chat group. Mm-hmm. Um but go over to uh to Justin's website and uh you can go click on that visit spot and I I must have I must have missed something or maybe I missed an update or whatever, but I seen like down at the bottom there was uh he went to Nick's place and uh there was a couple other cool things that I saw on there. Uh, plenty of uh photographs of uh from his Australia trips. Um you know, where you can see uh, uh if you're into geckos, there's tons of geckos on there. If you're into Liz you know what I mean? It's just everything you could possibly imagine reptile related is is on there, so that's cool. Um let's see. Uh like I said, we are what, two weeks not this weekend, but the following weekend we'll be at uh Tinley Park. Uh yep. which again I'm pretty pumped about. So I'm glad that we got to do this show. Uh Justin we have to have Justin on like maybe twice a year to keep us focused and pumped. Yeah, we'd have to do it, yeah. You know? Excited. <laughs> yeah. I do, I get Before excited after talk. You know? I I told you, man, you guys missed out on um uh when he gave that talk at uh the uh the Tinley Park. You were the only one that went that one, right? Because I didn't go with you till the following October. So Yeah, I yeah. shared a table I shared a table with Julie. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, me, Julie, Jason, Howard, Luke. Oh. That was the show uh, you guys were burning my business cards. Yeah, I remember this show. Yeah, 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 that was it. <laughs> that was Bastards. fun. Yeah, no, um, they, you know, Phelan loves that picture. He shows it a lot. So, yeah. That was such a that was such an exciting year for a multitude of reasons, but, you know, the the podcast had just come out. Uh yeah. the complete carpet python had just come out. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh the uh being able to uh, to go there and you know, uh, even that, even uh, ICAST was in 2013 as well. No, I think that was the following year. The following year, okay. I apologize. So, but yeah, it, but, uh, 13 was pretty good for Morelia. So, yeah, that that was uh, 2012 into 2013. Yeah, it was a good time. So it was 2012 that. October of 2012 is when that Tinley Park was. But back in my day, it <laughs> yeah. and that was it. Anyway, uh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, good stuff for sure. So uh, I guess if you're, I don't know. Again, uh, we've been preaching in it and preaching it, but you know you can't let these opportunities uh, that present themselves in life to you uh, pass you by. So I mean, you can be the guy. Or or the girl that says, uh, you know, uh, yeah, I guess I, I would love to go to that, and you never do it. Uh, or you can just do it, you know? Just do it. It doesn't mm-hmm. cost that much to head out to Tinley Park. And, you know, it seems that Tinley has become uh, the reptile show of the year, I would dare say. I, mean, uh, I, I, would, I would go ahead and just pretty much say that. I mean, from what I've heard I, of other shows that used to be uh, on the higher end or the, the two go-to shows, they are kind of no longer. So I would say that Tinley Park in October is uh, probably the biggest and best show in the country. And yeah. you, you know what's cool is is that people come. I mean, you know, there's a, there's a, I think it's the Sacramento show maybe that yeah. is 
is actually bigger than Tinley Park. But yeah. I mean, meaning size-wise, but um, you know, Tinley Park is you get everybody, you get the East Coasters, you get the West Coasters, you get the Southern. You know, I mean, it's just everybody. You get people from overseas. I mean, it's uh, yeah. I mean, uh, we're we're, we're going to see Peter Birch again, probably because uh, he was there the last two Tinleys, and it's always cool to catch up with him and get the Australian perspective. So, yeah, we got to get him on the show. I know. <laughs> I was talking about the last time I saw him because the, the the rules that they have to adhere to keeping Morelia is insanity. I yeah. mean, he was going over everything with me, and I think that would be an awesome show. And also feel make everyone here who keeps a card python in a bin feel like an idiot. So, <laughs> including the host, including you and me, because <laughs> so, that's what it did to me the last time. But anyway, we'll get, we'll get that later. But I would love to have Peter back on. He was a great guy to talk to, and he was like, "Oh, you know, this you know, living in my snake room. All of a sudden, a diamond python from outside comes walking in. He hangs out every once in a while. I check him out, let him loose. And I'm like, wait." You say a diamond python comes in from outside? Yeah. I'm like, oh, great. Yeah, okay. You know, I just bought these babies for this much, and you got random ones breaking into your house. So. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, the uh, you know what's cool is, is that, like, again, I, I always say, like, these guys, like Justin and, and Peter Birch and Nick and, 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 you know, Paul and all these guys, they have, like, rock star status, at least to me. You know, it's like, yeah. oh, my God. I can't believe I'm talking. I'm talking to the to these guys, like you know, and like when 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 you meet them and 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 then you're talking to them, and um, it's just you know, I don't know. I, I don't know how to explain it. So it, so it was it was like a couple weeks. I think it was maybe last week that yeah. Peter Birch must have been over at um, uh, prehistoric pets, right? <laughs> And okay. he's at Prehistoric Pets, and I guess he's filming uh, an episode of Criticam or whatever. And he has on the Carpet Fest shirt. You know, <laughs> it's just like I'm like, wow, that's so cool. Yeah. You know, I'm like, wow, that's so badass. That's um, such a little uh, thing in life that made me happy. But <laughs> you love the little things. Like I love that I was sitting at Last Finley Park with Jason Bale and, and Carrie King, and we're all going through carpet pythons pictures on our damn phone and it was like i'm like yes this is the most fun i've had so it's like this is it, i love it that it's like that stuff and i also love that you know i i sent some uh rogue t-shirts to australia um to uh down there and they, and they they're popping up every once in a while too so you, you gotta love this stuff you gotta enjoy the freaking hobby and on that note yeah huh. So again, I'm glad. Uh, yeah, we had uh, we had such a positive show. I I, I really like this show. So I'm gonna oh, have to go back. And listen to it. So it makes me yeah. feel all warm and fuzzy Pick inside. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, so next week, Owen is our four year anniversary. Oh Jesus Christ! We've been doing this for four years. Four years. Oh, How time has flown by. <clears throat> so um yeah, I think uh that episode will just be uh will be us and we'll probably take calls and you know you I, and I'm trying to the phones to the world. If you want to call in and share with us your favorite moments or what have you, or just call and brag on us, I'm 
I'm hoping Nobody. that we get a call from no. a, a, no. a man named Jim and, no. uh, you know, no. says, uh, way back in no. the day when, when no, Mr. Tire was just he, a wheeling. He, he, <laughs> he had dreams of one day co-hosting a podcast. He's drunk his mouth lately, <laughs> and I'm afraid of what he may say, so I'm not telling him. Uh, you know it would be crazy if, if both of our dads called in. That, now that oh would my be nice. <laughs> but that would be exactly what would go on right here. You do all, your dad has all the herpticulture knowledge, and you know my father would just be here for the comic relief. It'd be no change in the show at all. <laughs> yeah, it'd just be like the older version. Like yeah. yeah, yeah. It's like I, what the I, show's going to be in the next ten years. Yeah, so, I agree yeah. to the uh, the the. Uh, the old dudes that were on the Muppets that used to hang up in the, in the balcony. <laughs> yeah, Trumpy dudes. Right. Get it's, off my it's lawn. Not, you. It's not that far. <laughs> so far, yeah, it's pretty good. Oh, my so, God. So, yeah, I think uh, I think me and you were talking about maybe going back and talking about, uh, obviously, again, for, for newer people, you know, how, how it all came about and the history of it and some of our highlights and maybe uh, guess. I know we were talking about doing something like putting something up on the pick of the week where people can uh, weigh in on their uh, favorite moments throughout our past four years. And then of course we'll bring them up and talk about them on air. Um, yeah. Like I said, also phones will be open so you can call. I mean, my favorite, if we're going to go into that is when Eugene Bissett called me an unproven breeder or unproven <laughs> male. Yeah. That was pretty good. I didn't have kids. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> again, with the whole being starstruck by, star by the culture people, Eugene Bissett just made fun of me. That's fantastic. So, yeah. you know, I love that. So, um, but yeah, we'll get into all that stuff uh, next week. I always look forward to the show. And it, it feels like a whirlwind because we have this show, we have the review of Kinley. Then we're getting into calendar time. Then we're getting into holiday show time. Then we're getting into our winter break where you and I go crazy for two weeks. And then we're yeah. back again. So it's like, guys, this is uh, the end of the year from like, from Tinley on goes like fast. So, yeah, we'll get into yeah. breeding, breeding season. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. But all over again. In a few days, a few days we start, dude. Yeah. Christ. Do you find... I know, I know, we're kind of rambling here, but do you find that? Anyway, go ahead. (laughs) I know everybody's tuned out at this point. Do you find that, like, I I feel that since I've been breeding snakes, that my time goes faster. You know, it's just like, oh man, it's like boom. You know, because you're already sort of geared for the next season. It it's one of those things that what it does is it, it it you have this constant like clock that's kind of like moving you forward it's like um so now we're in this month but in this month this is what i have to do it's like i imagine somebody who you know it's almost like keeping track of things it's almost like a school teachers knowing what the next step is for the next month and the next month leads to this leads to this leads to this with having snakes you do have a schedule of what to do and your time does fly because now you're like all right i'm in breeding mode then you click into breeding mode and you're there for a couple of months and before you know it, now it's time to warm up. So it's, it, it's, it, it definitely moves faster. Or I can just say that the herpticulture um, society has just aged me horribly and moved time so quickly. <laughs> yeah, that too. <laughs> so yeah, I, I, kind of, 
I kind of go through that with my job, with my day job, you know. It's like when you're working in in retail, it's kind of like, you know, like I'm already doing orders and putting together things for Christmas. Yeah, I, that, that's, that's a <laughs> so perfect example. Like, yeah, you know, you, you like, know, with you it's got to move quicker because, like, you guys get the holiday shit in before we all see it, like, what, months in advance? Yeah, like next week we'll be doing uh, Valentine's Day. You know what I mean? So it's like you're already, like, I'm already past Christmas. You know, I'm I'm already into like February. You know, you so operate so far in the future. That <laughs> that's the thing is, you because you're because we look forward so many months, um, or, or we're always looking forward. It, it time does fly because I remember my first clutch of eggs. It took forever for those damn things to hatch. Now yeah. I'm like, holy crap, these things are pipping. So it's like. <laughs> It's already so it's like now it's like because summer flew because i was already getting ready for what i was going to be putting together what i was going to be breeding in october now we're right. in october and now october is going to fly into the winter because i'm going to be cooling down getting everybody geared up putting animals here putting animals there and before i know it, we're going to be bringing everybody up in springtime and then after that yeah. there'll be eggs it'll be carpet fest before you freaking know it <laughs> Yeah, I know, right? Crazy. Oh, uh, but okay. Um, anyway. So yeah, so that's next week's uh, next week's episode. Uh, so uh, be tuned for that. Stay tuned for that, and uh, should be should be should be a fun, fun, fun episode. Uh, so um, if you want to learn more about the show or more about Morelia in general. Uh, check MoreliaPythonRadio.com. Uh, I sort of I say this multiple times, but I sort of look at that as like kind of the hub of Morelia. You just kind of go there, and it kind of points you in the direction of uh, people and papers and books and all kinds of stuff that link out to show you uh, sort of the who's who of uh, carpet pythons and and Morelia. <clears throat> so. Uh, MoreliaPythonRadio.com. Um, you can listen to the show uh, on iTunes. Um, you can also, or whatever your podcast app of choice is. Uh, you know, we really don't. We really never really pushed for people to go and, and write reviews. There are some over there, but uh, I, so apparently that that helps when it comes to. I, I, uh, I, I think we were iTunes. afraid of what the public would say about us. So. <laughs> um. Yeah, I don't care anymore. You know, I'm just gonna <laughs> I'm gonna keep it that. keep it positive. You know, I I I, I don't know. That's kind of it is what it is. You know, if you don't like it, don't listen. I don't know what to say. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm just trying to learn like you guys are trying to learn. You know, so the only way to do that is to bring on the uh, you know the the, the people that uh, you know are 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 really top notch. Mm-hmm when it comes to working with these animals. So um, mm-hmm. that's kind of that. Uh, <clears throat> if you, uh, uh, you know, we're always looking for show ideas. So, uh, you know, every once in a while we sort of uh, gear off, uh, gear off of Morelia and talk about other things. And so if there's something that uh, you would like to hear, uh, you know, maybe we can uh, work that in. We sort of always sort of stay, with the Python vein, but, uh, every once in a while we'd ventured off, off of that. And, and, uh, you know, it seems Sometimes. that, uh, yeah, it seems that we might have to do, uh, uh, 
a blue tongue skink show at some point because it seems that that niche is sort of taken over. Uh, uh, people with Moralia seem to have uh, really jumped onto those guys. Of course, we yeah, haven't I, yet. No, no, <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah. No, um, nor, nor will I. But you know, if <laughs> for that episode, if you want, uh, I think we should just have Zach come on and be a co-host or something with that. Yeah. <laughs> have him tag out, and, you know. I have nothing to offer when it comes to that. <laughs> Neither do I. I do not. I mean, yeah. I took care of one at the zoo. It lived, so I'm pretty sure I was doing all right. But I don't know. I could have been slowly killing it. So, but yeah. yeah. So, yeah, uh, like I said. growing it, popularity. Yeah, yeah, uh, definitely have. Um, and I could say, you know, I was watching Zach's stuff while I was over there uh, with mm. the sweets. Um, <laughs> with Thor, <laughs> yeah. yeah, with Thor trollocking through Germany. Um, but, yeah, uh, <laughs> with boxes, but yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, they were cool, man. I I, I have to admit, yeah. you know, they they were pretty cool. But uh, anyway, uh, so yeah, send that to info at MoreliaPythonRadio dot com. Um, I'd love to talk to uh to people that. You know, if you're from Australia and you do field herping, I think that would make for an interesting show. Um, yeah. Uh, I think that uh, <clears throat> if you're from Australia and you approach breeding in a different way, I know, uh, I don't know if I should say it out loud, but one of the things hey. that we were, were, you know how we had, I think the first Australian guest that we had on was, mm. was it Wayne Larks or was it Damien Hyde? I can't remember I which was- came first. I think it was Larks, and then Hyde came on after. Yeah. I thought we had, like, so, Australia. I think we did, like, some Australian shows, like, back-to-back-to-back or something like that or something Yeah, it was, weird. like, a month of Australian uh, guests. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, he's he's breeding some phenomenal stuff, uh, Wayne. Yeah. Morelia yeah. Matt. But uh, I I know it's going to be coming out at some point, but, uh, you know, mm-hmm. Justin had mentioned to uh, Troy Killig, Kiligowski. Um yeah. but uh he's the guy that was doing the carpets and his brother was doing the yeah. blackheads and the olives and you know that kind of thing but uh anyway they were both together and I had made mention that uh that would be a pretty cool show to have both those guys you know come on and talk uh carpet pythons because that would be cool yeah that would be real cool so <clears throat> if you uh if you're listening to the show and, you know, you think you would be, uh, you know, want to come on, a lot of people get nervous about coming on, you know, they get, they get kind of afraid. It's just people hanging out, talking reptiles, you know, we're not, you know, we're, we want to be nice people. <laughs> Eric is. Yeah. So, yeah. So send that to info at MoreliaPythonRay.com. Um, let's see what else. Don't forget this weekend is the Northwest Carpet Fest. Uh, if you, uh, are going to be in that area if you're on the fence and you're in that area i i definitely would recommend heading yeah. out hanging out with yeah. those guys and and girls uh it will be a great time no doubt um and you'll get to uh hang out with some like i said some of the coolest people in the uh in this whole reptile shindig um so uh if it's in seattle um mm-hmm. And there's going to be, as soon as they send the links, I'm, like I said, it'll be 
post it all over Facebook. I'll put it up on MoreliaPythonRadio.com and CarpetFest.com and all that stuff. Um, the uh, auction that they're doing for U.S. Arc, um, you know, should be uh, some some cool prizes. They're not doing any live animals. They're only doing, uh, um, you know, vouchers. So that way you get mm-hmm. the animal you want. You know what I mean? You don't have to uh, settle for uh, what they what somebody has to offer. You can pick pick the animal that you want and fits into your uh, to your breeding plans. Although I'm not uh, the animal that I got from a carpet fest was one of uh, the inlands from uh, Australian addiction. Uh, oh yeah, I remember that one. <laughs> I had to have that man. That was I uh, need I need inlands, dude. I do. It's Stop it! I'm not buying snakes. We're going to Australia. Damn it! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't worry. Well, I'll be them. I'll be breeding inlands the same year that you'll be breeding ruffies. So we got well, we got well, each other covered. We already now, talked about that for the black face wetlip trade. You, you, yeah, you're gonna get water pythons for the inlands. Okay, god damn it! <laughs> Pissed off, fuck it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so let's see what else do we got. Uh, so we got the Carpet Fest uh, Northwest. Um, yes. And then uh, we talked about Tinley Park. Um, and just so everybody knows the date, that is October, what is it, 10th and 11th? Yes, 10th and 11th. Uh, Tinley Park, Chicago, Illinois. You can check out uh, the NARBC.com uh, website, and that'll tell you more information. Um, don't forget U.S. Arc. We have the booster going, uh, the Morelia yes. Python Radio T-shirt booster. All proceeds going to U.S. Arc. Uh, so <laughs> right, you're going right to donate to Get a cool T-shirt. Right, right now we've raised sixty cents. Sixty cents. Oh wow! Come on. We finally people. hit. We finally <laughs> hit the uh, finally hit the threshold where the order will be fulfilled. But okay. all that money and all those shirts have made for paid for the order but now is when we start making money for us arc so we have raised 60 cents so now if you go over get a shirt we're going to start building up the money to for us arc now you probably only have about 10 days maybe less so no more dawdling go get the t-shirt do it yeah you you get a cool shirt and you know you're donating to a good cause so uh, it's a good thing uh, this will be the last time we offer this shirt, so no more of these shirts after this. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. And I guess last for me would be uh, ebmorelia.com. dot uh, com. We're gonna. I'm, I took a whole bunch of pictures the past two days. Uh, oh so my god! I'm gonna be putting up what uh, what I have available. Uh, I got some nice tigers available, uh, so that should be. They're not had albino, Owen, so don't worry. <laughs> I did, how, did you, how did you know I was even going to ask that? Yeah. Uh, these are from my uh, Citrus Tiger line. Um, uh, so they're, they're going to be, they should be stellar as uh, as adults. Um, and uh, what else do I got? I, I got caramel stuff, caramel jags. I got uh, you know, caramel and jungle. Like I've, car- I have a caramel jungle jag. That's, mm. uh, I know that's kind of blasphemy, but <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's a pretty cool looking snake, man. I mean, that's gonna be, uh, 
I don't know. That might be an avenue that people might want to go down. Um, but, uh, you know, it's uh, definitely cool stuff. Um, uh, yeah, super caramel stuff. And I got uh, the, both pure and crosses and, uh, uh, man, uh, coastal stuff. And I have head albino stuff, uh, jags and zebra jags and caramels and uh, all that kind of stuff. So I'm going to try to get, uh, get it together before Tinley. So that, uh, you know, if there's something that you're interested in and you want to pick it up at Tinley, save on shipping, uh, that would be that would be cool. Uh, so look for that in the next couple of days, ebmorelia.com. I took a picture of my ivory jungle. Um, oh, <laughs> man, man, that snake is cool. That snake is a cool snake. It is. I actually got it from Mike Curtin, and if he finds out that, that he let that go, he's he, probably no, no, gonna... no, he knows. Trust me, he knows, and he hates it. <laughs> so, <laughs> yep. That's why I don't sell anything until it's grown yeah. up. You know what I mean? Because I, oh man. But uh, yeah, some 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 cool stuff. So look out for that. ebmorelia.com. If you're interested in anything, uh, check out my uh, Facebook page, uh, ebmorelia. I'm on Twitter, Instagram. If you want to send me an email, send it to eric at ebmorelia.com, and uh, I'll get back to you as soon as I can. Um, and hopefully uh, we'll see you at Tinley. That's all I got, Owen. All right. Uh, what I got, you can go to rogue-reptiles.com. You can check out everything we got going on at Rogue. Uh, there's a new page right when you open it up. It's called uh, Lineage Information. You click on that, and it will actually take you to a page where I have prepared all the family trees for all the babies that are available. You just got to look up their clutch ID number. And it'll point you in the right direction of what family tree well, and all the information that I have currently. <laughs> shut up! <laughs> you shut your mouth. So, <laughs> Ooh, you Mr. Fancy Pants. I know. I, I saw Nick do it, and I love the idea. It's If you want the lineage information, this is the lineage information that I know of currently. So, And some of the family trees, to be honest, are kind of bare. It's just like, here's mom, here's dad. And there's a list of the guy I got it from. I tried getting pictures or tried getting lineage at one point and either never got it. So if you want to continue further, like say you bought one of the babies and you want to hunt down some more, please do. And if you do find some more information, please send it on over. I'd be happy to update the family trees. Well, then this way, now they're up and they're up forever. So if somebody gets an animal from me and doesn't get the lineage information, and a few years go by, and then they start getting really seriously into that stuff, they can now go back look up the baby and pull up the lineage number. Um, right now I only put up the animals that we currently have for sale. If you have a baby or if you want a family tree done for a pairing, please let me know, and I'll be happy to provide that for you on uh, the website. So it also cuts back on the people emailing me asking me for lineage. Anyway, but that's, that's the second notion. <laughs> um, so yeah, you can go check that out. Also, uh, the we have up to date on all the snakes for sale on the website as well as on the Facebook. That's rogue-reptiles or rogue-reptiles at facebook.com. Uh, you can look it up there. All the latest stuff that's going on rogue are there. We're going to be putting up our 2016 pairings once I have finalized the pairings. It will not be all the pairings because I'm keeping a few secret from you people. Yeah, that's going to happen. Anyway, <laughs> um, so. Uh, we'll see about that. If you are interested in a pairing, let us know. We'll get you on the list. We'll talk to you about it, uh, and we'll see how it goes. Uh, other than that, 
the next show I have cooking for us is Tinley Park, Chicago, with my good friend Eric Burke. And then the weekend right after Tinley, I have the Hamburg Reptile Show in Hamburg, Pennsylvania. So we got like back to back shows. And if Timley goes well, I might just be at Hamburg laughing. So who knows? <laughs> <laughs> so if you're sitting there going, I'll get it at Hamburg, don't. I suggest you talk to me very soon. Um, yeah. It's one of those things where I was talking to you. It's like, I don't want to sell babies because I want to bring them all to, Han- to Timley. And this is when things are flying off the shelves. So if you want a baby, make sure you contact me prior to. That's all I got, and that's all we got. So what I will say is thank you all for listening, and we're going to catch everybody next week for some more Morelia Python Radio. Good night. Hey, Chad Brown here. You may remember me as a linebacker in the NFL or as a reptile breeder and the owner of Pro Exotics. I've been herping since I was a boy, and I've dedicated my life to advancing the industry and educating the community about the importance of reptiles. I also love to encourage the joy of breeding and keeping reptiles as a hobbyist, which is why my partner Robin and Marklin and I created the Reptile Report. The Reptile Report is our online news aggregation site bringing you the most up-to-date discussions from the reptile world. Visit thereptilereport.com every day to stay on top of the latest reptile news and information. We encourage you to visit the site and submit your exciting reptile news, photos, and links so we can feature outstanding breeders and hobbyists just like you. The Reptile Report offers powerful branding and marketing exposure for your business, and the best part is it's free. If you're a buyer or a breeder, you got to check out the Reptile Report Marketplace. The Marketplace is the reptile world's most complete buying and selling destination full of features to help put you in touch with the perfect deal. Find exactly what you're looking for with our advanced search system. Search by sex, weight, morph, or other keywords and use our Buy It Now option to buy that animal right now. Go to marketplace.thereptilereport.com and register your account for free. Be sure to link your Marketplace account to your Ship Your Reptiles account to earn free tokens with each shipping label you book. Use the Marketplace to sell your animals and supplies and maximize your exposure with a platinum ad that also gets fed to the Reptile Report and our powerful Marketplace Facebook page. Buying or selling? Use shipyourreptiles.com to take advantage of our discounted priority overnight shipping rates. ShipYourReptiles.com can also supply you with the materials needed to safely ship your animals successfully. Use ShipYourReptiles.com to take advantage of our discounted priority overnight shipping rates, the materials needed to ship your reptiles successfully, live customer support, and our live on-time arrival insurance program. We got you covered. Visit TheReptileReport.com to learn or share about the animals. Click on the link to the marketplace, find that perfect pet or breeder. Then visit ShipYourReptiles.com to ship that animal anywhere in the United States. We are your one-stop shop for everything reptile-related.